Good morning, everyone. It is Saturday, as usual, August 12, 2023. We have another Saturday Free School for Philosophy and Black Liberation. Um, today, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. We're going to talk about um, developments happening in Africa, but we're going to first begin by having a discussion about neo-Pan-Africanism, the Black liberation struggle, um, and also the U.S. policy um, U.S. policy on um, related to Pan-Africanism and black, the Black liberation struggle. But before we um, have a conversation about Africa, we're going to first hand it over to our comrades in Chicago because um, there's an exciting event coming up. And so I'll let Meghna announce what's happening in Chicago, um, and then we'll have our main discussion. Thanks, Emily. Um, so as many of you know, as we've announced on social media, we are holding an event in Chicago commemorating the life and ideas of Reverend James Lawson. Reverend James Lawson is someone who is known as the architect of the black, the nonviolent movement to desegregate America um, or the black freedom struggle. And uh, Reverend Lawson has worked with the free school in the past. He came in 2019 for the year of Gandhi where he was the keynote speaker. And so we had reached out to him because he was supposed to be coming to the Parliament of World Religions. And he was unable to, so we had a whole talk set up. We heard from him a couple weeks ago that he, um, because of health reasons, he's not going to be able to come in person. We felt, however, that the history of nonviolence, the philosophy, the ideas, um, just the whole example of action and moral commitment was very important for our times, especially the idea of um, the alternative for America and the American people. Um, we thought that we had to keep this conversation going. Um, we had to bring this history to the people of Chicago, even though Reverend Lawson can't be there in person. So we are moving forward with the event. Uh, it's called Claiming the Gift of Humanity. Reverend James Lawson and the Future of Revolutionary Nonviolence. Um, and revolutionary nonviolence is the term that he uses in his book, but really to talk about how um, participation in a nonviolent struggle changes who you are as a human being, um, such that the world around you can no longer continue to be unjust. Um, and so the event um, is going to be this Wednesday. August 16th from 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock p.m. Um, it's going to be at a venue called Calabria um, Center for Performing Arts on 21st and Wabash in Chicago. And the event will consist of a short documentary, which I will let Neha speak about, where we're going to play clips about Reverend Lawson's life, his ideas about nonviolence, um, and just in general, his assessment of the world situation and what is necessary for our times. It's going to be followed by a round table, not quite a panel, but where we have discussants responding to the video and also bringing their insight to bear on um, what nonviolence means for our times. So that panel will include Du Bois and scholar Anthony Montero. Uh, who has graciously agreed to come. Thank you so much, Doc. Um, as well as um, the General Secretary of Gandhi Global Family, 
Ram Mohan Rai, who will speak about nonviolence in the world situation. And finally, um, student minister Abel Mohammed of Mosque Maryam, Chicago, is going to speak about nonviolence, the struggle for unity, and knowledge for self. Um, knowledge of self, how all these things are deeply interconnected and intertwined and necessary for preparing for a new future. Um, after that, there's going to be a question and answer session. There will also be chai and samosa that Kalapriya has generously um, given us. And I will give it to Neha to fill in anything that I've left as well as speak about the documentary that she's putting together. I just wanted to say we're really excited to have all of you guys come down to Chicago and uh, for everybody else to join on live stream. But uh, yeah, I think Meghna's mostly spoken about everything. Just I wanted to briefly talk about the video. I think we were thinking of having the video just touch on some of the points that the panels will then expand upon. So uh, the main idea that we were thinking at, at this point of time when the American people are, are uh, more wary and are looking towards are thinking about peace that we we in the free school were discussing about about the triad of opposition representing that aspiration of peace and also uh, talk about like how this violence abroad is connected to violence at home and expand on that so and how the alternative to all of this is the transformation of the nation and which which has already been started this program was already started with the black freedom struggle uh, and the civil rights movement so how that is to be continued in our times and what is the responsibility of us of young people today to take forward the lessons learned from there and build upon it and as Diane Nash says like develop like this idea or strategy of uh, non-violence further like that is the only way you can remember or like pay your tributes to the black freedom struggle so I think to to just talk about that and yeah and see where that leads us yeah yeah just also wanted to add we're very grateful to free school members for continuing to come to Chicago um, you know when they booked their tickets in their hotel we thought Reverend Lawson would be here in person and we're just very grateful um, and feel a tremendous responsibility that you all have still decided to come um, and support this event. So we're very, we're very excited to see all of you and we hope you have a wonderful trip. Yeah, we're really excited to come. Um, and as always, free school, when one of us goes, to some place we all have to roll in squad deep so <laughs> uh, there's only two options and none of us go or all of us go uh, <laughs> um but yeah we're really looking forward to the event and although um although we wish james lawson could you know was in better health and could be there i think it's really important i think it's really important that we're honoring him like the idea of nonviolence and what it means for these times and the struggle for advancing democracy. Um, but if, I don't know if anyone else has any comments, but, oh, and this is also a call for any of our commenters or listeners who live in the Midwest. Um, we would love if you could come too. Um, we put the RSVP link in the 
comment section. So you can RSVP. Um, we'd love to meet you. Um, and I'm sure many of you would love to meet um, the premier Du Boisian scholar, <laughs> Anthony Montero. <laughs> but <laughs> without... Yeah, I was just going to add one quick thing. Now, I'm really excited for the event, particularly because recently I saw this uh, video on the internet where this, you know, more what you would call progressive leftist goes to the Trump rally. And he oh. interviews these individuals at the Trump rally. And he, the message of the interview is that is that the ruling elite are essentially trying to divide people based on left and right. But as he was talking to these individuals, he found that there was much more in common. Um, and these, like one of the questions actually the interviewer asked was about the US UPS uh, strikes. And so the interview asked the, the, the Trump supporter, like, what do you think about these strikes in terms of being able to have uh, negotiated? Like, I think you would be, Emily, you'd be more familiar with it. But in terms of the strikes being able to uh, help to raise the wages of these workers. Um, and the person, the person that responded said, well, I agree with it because, you know, the essentially the individuals as part of the Trump rally were uh, like one of their main demands is for um, higher living standards for regular people. Um, and so, but one line he said was, well, I agree with it because I think nonviolence direct action works. Mm. And like in those exact words, and it made me think about like, what is the legacy of the civil rights movement of King of Lawson that are in the minds of people, but haven't like, hasn't been completely fleshed out uh, amongst American people or to carry forward. Uh, and so I think it's a, it's, it's a really timely event in terms of, you know, understanding how the American people have been impacted and how, it also is in the minds of a strategy for moving forward for mm -hmm. our times. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm really excited for it, uh, especially because of that video that I watched recently. Okay, well, maybe um, we can move on to our main discussion, which I think a lot of the commenters already um, seem to be looking forward to, which is um, our discussion about Pan-Africanism, the Black liberation struggle, and U.S. policies. Um, so, Doc, I'll hand it over to you. Okay. Thanks a lot, Emily. Um, you know, uh, what we're seeing uh, with respect to Africa, uh, the situation in Niger and the conflicts uh, in West Africa, uh, between African states, uh, those who feel they want to intervene to uh, reverse the results of what is being called a coup d'etat in Niger, uh, and other states saying that if uh, certain African states intervene militarily, they will intervene and will, will look upon an attack upon uh, the government, uh, whatever form it takes in Niger, in Niger, as an attack upon them. And those states are Mali, Burkina Faso, and Guinea, and maybe even Algeria. Uh, most of those states have borders with Niger. But uh, 
the essence of what is going on is a crisis of neocolonialism. The mode of, of, of the relationship between Africa and the former colonial powers uh, and to uh, construct those relationships uh, based upon neocolonialism, which is but another form of colonialism with the appearance uh, that the nations are independent. Uh, you know, uh, you know, the construction of the neo-colonial uh, relationships come after, of course, uh, the independence movements and were uh, solidified from the late 60s onward. Uh, most African nations were forced into neo-colonial relations with <coughs> Europe and the United States. Uh, you know, like uh, uh, Victoria Newland, the uh, <coughs> the Assistant Secretary of State ran over to Niger, uh, so, quote, upset about the overthrow of the, quote, elected government, when it was the United States brutally uh, imposing upon Africa neo-colonialism, and it starts with the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, the overthrow of Kwame Nkrumah in 1966, while he was on a friendship visit to Vietnam. Uh, they overthrew him and, and everyone now knows that this was a CIA engineered and backed coup d'etat, just in the same way that the assassination of Patrice Lumumba in 1961 was a CIA and Western intelligence operation. Um, we have talked about the overthrow of Modiba Keita in Mali and his dying under mysterious conditions in jail uh, in the uh, late 60s, I think it was. Uh, we've talked about the, um, uh, the assassination of uh, Marion Nguabe, the assassination in 1973 of Emilcar Gabral, the leader of the liberation movement in Guinea, Bissau and Cape Verde. Uh, and then of course, the consolidation during the same period of the US alliance with uh, South Africa, the apartheid regime, uh, and uh, with the white uh, regime in uh, what was then called Rhodesia, today Zimbabwe. And then of course, propping up through the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. I hope everybody can follow all of this. Propping up through NATO, the Portuguese fascist colonial regimes in Southern Africa. Uh, and then, again, I, I, I hope we can see, imagine, or get a, a picture of this, uh, developing an axis. The NATO thing was one thing, but then a axis within that 
of the United States, apartheid South Africa, and Israel. That was an axis, and it was it was used by the United States to funnel nuclear weapons technology through Israel to South Africa. I mean, so uh, I, I guess what, what I'm saying at the same time is for Victoria Newland to go with blood of Africans on her hands as a representative of the US government and talk about, I'm going to prevent violence and to uphold democracy when it has been your government that has assassinated and overturned government after government on the African continent, upheld colonialism in Southern Africa and supported the Israeli apartheid South Africa alliance of nuclear development of nuclear weapons. So, um, so much for Western democracies uh, and all of their claims. And part of what, you know, we do in the free school, and I know the Bandung Reading Group is now reading Kwame Nkrumah's classic, Neocolonialism, The Highest Stage of Imperialism. And this is a very fundamental work. And it was this work, that book, that triggered the CIA and its agents in Ghana to overthrow Nkrumah. And, um, but this is a very important book. I think the title of it uh, is accurate. Uh, the highest stage of imperialism or the highest stage of uh, colonialism, that neo-colonialism is in fact a form of the oppression of the African continent, especially what they call Black Africa or Sub-Saharan Africa for the purpose of controlling the vast wealth, both mineral and human, of the African continent. That relationship has, is now in crisis. And of course, the first, for me, the first indication of it is when almost half of the nations of the African Union, there are about 54 of them, about 25 of them refused to vote with the US in the UN General Assembly over a US resolution to condemn Russia in the Ukraine. That was the first sign that, whoa, something is going on here. And then, of course, the events in Niger uh, and obviously in other countries, Burkina Faso, the former Benin, um, uh, Mali, Guinea, perhaps Algeria, uh, and who knows where else. This is, of course, West Africa. Uh, but then, of course, the developments politically and geostrategically in South Africa 
where the South African government, let me just give you an example of what I'm saying. The South African government in 2011, when NATO went to the UN Security Council to get its support to bomb Libya and overthrow the government of Colonel Muammar Gaddafi. And two African nations were on the Security Council at that time, South Africa and Nigeria. And they both voted with the US, with the US and Western uh, countries to bomb Libya. And I, I have to tell you, I was shocked beyond belief to hear the speech of the South African representative at the at, on the Security Council, given all of the aid and protection that the government of Libya had given to the South African liberation movement. Uh, by the way, I, I wrote an article called, oh God, listen, I forget the title of it, but it's something about the uh, evolution of Nelson Mandela from revolutionary to almost neo-colonial government. Uh, you can read it, you know, I think it depicts what had happened uh, uh, by the time the ANC took governmental power in 1994. It was not the same ANC. And then by 2011, it had completely uh, uh, capitulated to the West, even if it meant supporting the overthrow of a, of a nation, a friendly nation and a friendly leader. However, today, a little more than 10 years out from that time, the South African ANC-led government has taken a completely different position. Uh, and South Africa is so important because it, it has industry, it's the wealthiest nation, although a nation filled with poverty. Uh, but to align now, through the BRICS organization, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and other uh, mechanisms of what they call the Global South, to align with these forces in opposition to NATO and the United States. All of this put together constitutes a crisis of neocolonialism. And Africa has been a major, a major victim of neocolonialism. Uh, the most, well, you know, it's like Africa partitioned as it was from, eight, from the 1880s and not being able to yet form the types of uh, Confederate alliances. Uh, but anyway, you know, that legacy of partition and neo-colonialism. Uh, the greatest 
and most vicious wars of imperialism have been fought in Asia. There are no two ways about that. We, we you know, so this new Afro-Asiatic alliance is what is provoking and propelling the crisis of neo-colonialism. I want to underline that, the crisis of neo-colonialism. I, I listen to a lot of commentary, read a lot of commentary about Niger, and um, you know, people, you know, talk, you know, give a lot of information and good data and so on and so forth. But what I've not heard any of the commentators say is that this constitutes a crisis of neocolonialism, a crisis that can be resolved through brutality and and Western intervention, or can be resolved through uh, a new stage of the struggle and of liberation on the African continent. Uh, however, uh, in 1978, uh, a memorandum was produced by the National Security Council uh, of the Carter administration. Everybody knows what the National Security uh, Council is. It's like in the White House, part of the executive branch, and it, it, it advises the president on national security matters. The most famous national security director was um, Henry Kissinger under Nixon. And it became under Kissinger, a extremely powerful instrument of US foreign policy. In fact, you could call the National Security Council the foreign policy arm of the White House. The second most famous person was a guy that saw himself as the next Kissinger, and that is Big New Brzezinski. Um, Brzezinski is Polish. He emigrated to the United States because he and his family opposed uh, socialism and the Soviet Union. And he came here and he rose to become this powerful figure in US foreign policy. And so it is under him and under his leadership that this national security memorandum is produced. I just want to show you, and I'm going to, I'm not going to talk too long about it, but it's entitled, hold on one second, um, uh, Memorandum 46, and it says the subject of the memorandum, this is 1978, but it as it is as relevant in 2023 as it was then. And this the subject of this memorandum, as they stated, is Black Africa and the U.S. Black movement. This document, uh, in effect, oh, by the way, the memorandum uh, was sent to the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, and the Director of Central Intelligence. The reason I mention these three uh, departments or agencies that the memorandum was sent to 
is that to include black America in the discussion of geostrategic and foreign policy issues is saying, in effect, that the black movement is a threat or could become a threat to US foreign policy and hence a national security threat within the borders of the United States. And the memorandum uh, says, which I won't read up, but I'm gonna read its recommendations. It says that US interest in Africa is anchored to the US policy and support for apartheid South Africa. That in supporting South Africa, they are also supporting the US policy in the Middle East, which means supporting Israel, uh, which then uh, in effect is saying that an axis of Israel, the United States and South Africa exists. This is a military alliance to contain the struggle for African independence. And they link the African and Arab struggles for sovereignty, territorial integrity, and the rights of Palestinians. Again, I wanna underline this. To contain the struggle for Africa's independence and for Palestinian rights at the highest level of government was said that we have, that we the government has to do whatever we have to do to contain the black movement and its connections to Africa and by implication, its connections to the Palestinians. Um, now, this memorandum comes five years after the publication of Henry Winston's Strategy for a Black Agenda. Um, and it comes five years after the founding, uh, which was Winston's vision, frankly, of the national anti-imperialist movement in solidarity with African liberation, which I was the executive secretary of for maybe about 10 or 12 years. The reason I mentioned Winston's book and the founding of the anti-imperialist movement in solidarity with Africa is because what this national security document says is that all that Winston had conceptualized in the book and how we attempted to implement it in the solidarity movement with Africa is what is targeted by this memorandum. I mean, again, I, you know, I'm always saying to you guys, you know, I was young, I didn't know that much, I was inexperienced. But I became a target of just what they're talking about. When they talk about cutting the black movement and this, uh, off from the United Nations. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, in, in 1975, I presented 
to the UN Special Committee <coughs> Against Apartheid, which at that time was headed by Guinea's UN ambassador, a woman named Madame Cisse. Uh, I presented along with um, uh, who, uh, what's, uh, the act, uh, that's, uh, I'll remember all the names, but we, um, we went to the United Nations, which was a way of saying to the African nations and to the world community that there is a movement afoot opposing the US policy in South Africa and Africa generally. That, um, and it was here that I met the very famous Indian anti-apartheid activist who was then the administrative head of the Special Committee Against Apartheid, Mr. E.S. Reddy. That's where I met him. And, you know, that, that's a whole story in itself. Uh, a spectacular man, a man of deep principle, and uh, actually a, uh, a disciple of Du Bois and Paul Robeson. And uh, just parenthetically, I, I, I heard, I think, from uh, Johanna Magna that in Mr. Reddy's last years or days, uh, the only music he wanted to listen to was music sung by Paul Robeson. So it, it was just, uh, go, go. Specifically, he was making a study of Negro spirituals. Like that's what, when we asked him what he was doing with his time, that's what he was really dedicated to. Yeah, I, um, there's so much to say about Mr. Reddy. I, um, but anyway, um, so three years later, after we present these petitions, after a very difficult struggle at that time, because Apartheid was not on the front pages of the newspapers. The war in Vietnam had just come to an end. Uh, and that there were, there were so many efforts to destabilize what we were attempting to do. And one of the ways they destabilize you is to trivialize you or, to, or a movement or to set other, quote, black organizations against you. And we'll see how that worked out in this document. But the document is, is a, um, excuse me all. The document, the memorandum itself is a defense of US interests as they put it, but US interests were in the upholding of colonialism in Southern Africa, especially apartheid in South Africa and neo-colonialism in general on the African continent and undermining any anti-imperialist and anti-colonial efforts among black people in the United States. Let me, um, um, let me just read the recommendations and I think that will help us know uh, 
Okay. So they're interested, this memorandum is interested in weakening the anti-colonial and anti-imperialist uh, sentiments in the African-American community. They feel that if we, the activists, were aligned with the quote, what they call the radical forces on the African continent, which by which they meant the African National Congress, the um, uh, in, in South Africa, uh, the Southwest African People's Organization in Namibia, which was the liberation movement there, uh, uh, ZANU, the Zimbabwe African National Union in, in Zimbabwe, and the uh, Zimbabwe African People's Union, the two wings of the liberation movement there. Uh, and then, of course, aligning with other socialist forces on the African continent, such as the Ethiopian Revolution of 1974, 75, uh, the overthrow of Portuguese colonialism uh, by the overthrow of the government of, of Portugal in 1974, leading to the independence of Angola and Mozambique and Cape Verde and Guinea-Bissau, the Portuguese colonies on the African continent. Uh, these were all radical, as they would have it, uh, independence organizations. They were part of a world movement. They were linked to the Soviet Union. They were supported by the Soviet Union. And they all had a very anti-American or anti-US imperialist uh, political posture. And of course, uh, we were deeply linked to them. Uh, in fact, I would say on my, for myself, you know, we knew all of them personally. Uh, uh, the leaders, especially not every one of them, but we knew, I knew a lot of them, um, uh, a lot of them personally. And the interactions between us and them were the interactions of comrades and brothers and sisters. There was no separation. Um, and, um, and so, let me just, so they felt that um, the government of the United States felt that the black movement in this uh, revolutionary pan-Africanist sense could destabilize the United States government. And uh, as you could put it, undermine the US government's uh, effort to contain and control the black movement. This comes after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968. So we're basically talking about 10 years later and black folk had not gotten over that, you know? And we were skeptical, distrustful of the US government and anything it said, especially since it was aligned with a racist regime in South Africa, while Carter himself was talking about his foreign policy was going to be led by his concern of the US regime's concern with human rights. I mean, a, a huge contradiction, and nobody fell for it. And there was not 
yet from the standpoint of the U.S. government and this memorandum, a, uh, a black set of, quote, leaders that they had chosen, which could offset what we were doing. I don't know if that makes sense the way I put it. In other words, we had the upper hand in explaining U.S. policy in Africa and South Africa in particular, and how without the United States and without Israel, the regime could easily collapse. And there was no set of white or black leaders that could challenge us. We had, we had the upper hand, so to speak. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine these days. Um, so they had to do several things. And um, uh, now did, so they make recommendations. So under um, the heading political options, they make these recommendations. I would like to read them to you. One, specific steps should be taken with the help of appropriate government agencies to inhibit coordinated activity of the black movement in the United States. Now, when they talk about appropriate government agencies, they're talking about the national security state, the FBI and the CIA. So in the name of national security, our freedom of speech, was undermined. Um, two, special clandestine operations should be launched by the CIA to generate distrust and hostility in American and world opinion against joint activity of, two, of, of the two forces. Africa and Afro-America, and to cause division among black African radical national groups and their leaders. Three, US embassies to black African countries specifically interested in Southern Africa, that is South Africa, must be highly circumspect in view of the activity of certain political circles and influential individuals opposing the objectives and methods of US policy towards South Africa. It must be kept in mind that the failure of US strategy in South Africa would adversely affect American standing throughout the world. In addition, this would mean a significant diminution of U.S. influence in Africa and the emergence of new difficulties in our internal situation due to worsening economic prospects. Four, the FBI should mount surveillance operations against Black African representatives and collect sensitive information to smear them, of course, 
on those, especially at the UN, who oppose US policy towards South Africa. The information should include facts on their links with the leaders of the black movement in the United States, thus making possible at least partial neutralization of the adverse effects of their activity. Let me just say what this means. To discredit African and Afro-American opponents of US, US imperialist policies towards South Africa. Keep this in mind, the smearing, the claim, you know, and then of course, how uh, feminists, a so-called black feminist discourse was deployed against both the civil rights leaders and the leaders in the um, anti-imperialist cause with respect to Africa. Then they have a section called Trends in the American Black Movement. This is highly significant because this becomes the central topic of Henry Winston's strategy for black agenda. And they call for considerable, that the United States government should be in the forefront of bringing about significant changes in the black movement. I think you guys have heard me say many, many times, the black movement was brought down and has existed under enormous ideological pressure of, for some time, for at least 50 years. And that the US government has, and the deep state has chosen black leaders, so-called, which you know Glenn Ford has called the black misleadership class. But here's what they say. They call for principal changes, and here's what they are. Social and economic issues have supplanted political aims as the main preoccupation of the black movement. And actions formally planned on a nationwide scale are now being organized locally. That's what we were doing. Catherine could tell you about that. Two, listen to this fragmentation and a lack of organizational unity within the black movement, okay? You've all heard of COINTELPRO, right? That comes out of the 1950s. That was a counterinsurgency program carried out by the FBI to, you know, for instance, call everybody that's a civil rights activist like King an agent of communist influence or communist, that type of thing. But to fragment the movement was the aim of COINTELPRO. But this goes even further and deeper to destabilize, fragment, and undermine the black movement and unity in the black movement. Three, Sharp social stratification of the black 
population uh, and lack of policy options which would reunite them. To preempt as much as they could the possibility of unity of action of the black people. Then they go on and they talk about the range of, pop, of policy options. A, to enlarge programs within the framework of the present federal budget for the improvement of the social and economic welfare of American Blacks in order to ensure continuing development of present trends in the Black movement. That is what you see the Biden administration trying to do, although they don't have the money to do it, to buy off as many Black people as possible in order to create a a leadership, quote unquote, that says, look, we're working on improving the day-to-day -day lives of black people. We don't have time. We black folk don't have time to talk about South Africa. You see what I'm saying? And this was so obvious. Uh, by the way, parenthetically, this is why the campaign and election of Howard Washington was so fundamentally important because in my estimate, Harold Washington was the most significant mayor of any city in the United States in the last 70 years, at least. There's perhaps never been a mayor and a mayoral campaign that carried such consequences as that of Harold Washington. It represented this high level of unity. But again, how Washington fought for radical reforms while not becoming a reformist. A reformist is one that says, we can only get reforms, we can't get radical change. B, to elaborate and bring into effect a, a special program designed to perpetuate, listen, to perpetuate to perpetuate division in the black movement and neutralize the most active groups of leftist radical organizations representing different social strata of the black community. To encourage division in black circles. C, to preserve the present climate which inhibits the emergence from within the black leadership of a person capable of exerting nationwide appeal. It's almost an admission that they killed King. They're almost admitting it. D, to work out and realize preventive operation, preventive, this is counterinsurgency in the United States against the black movement to work out and realize preventive operations in order to impede durable ties between U.S. black organizations and radical groups in African states. 
E, to support actions designed to sharpen social stratification in the black community, which would lead to the widening and perpetuation of the gap between successful educated blacks and the poor, giving rise to growing antagonisms between different black groups and a weakening of the movement as a whole. In other words, they are admitting that government policy is to weaken the struggle for black freedom. This continues up till today. You wanna know the headwinds that the free school constantly faces. They're telling you, it's right here. None of this is happenstance. When the government targets an organization, you will always see, and I saw it in my previous life, I see it now, number of individuals and, and ideologues being thrown at the efforts of that group of people. Okay. E, to support actions designed to sharpen social stratification in the black community already talked about. F, to facilitate the greatest possible expansion of black business, i.e. black capitalism, by granting government contracts and loans with favorable terms to black businessmen. I'm not against that, but to use black businessmen against the black movements. Okay. Now we see that uh, with the rise of hip hop and hip hop billion and millionaires and athletes to use that form of black capitalism or that form, what I call parasitism to destabilize the movement of the black people. Emily, listen to this. E, G, to take every possible means through the AFL-CIO leaders to counteract the increasing influence of black labor organizations, which function in all major unions and in particular the National Coalition of Black Trade Unions and its leadership, including the creation of a real preference for adverse and hostile reaction among white trade unionists to demands for improvement of social and economic welfare of blacks. We have talked about how the social democrats in the name of labor, are trying to reinvent or recreate the color line in order to manage the black movement and contain it, and to prevent the unity of black and white labor. H, to support, now listen to this, to support the nomination at federal and local levels of loyal 
black public figures to elected office, to government agencies and the court. And then they go on. This would promote the achievement of a twofold purpose. First, it would be easier to control, now listen, to control the activity of loyal black representatives within existing institutions, including universities and academics. You want to explain the cowardice behavior, the indifference of black academics to the conditions of the poor, the removing from faculty of blacks who are associated with the struggles of the masses of the people of, wor of the world and the poor. By the way, the more I talk, it's like my story being told by the government of the United States. You know, I was removed from Temple and the chairman of the department who did it after, you know, well, I'm going to the details. He said he did it on the basis. He said this through his Facebook uh, uh, account. He said, I was not a scholar and I was nothing but a communist apparatchik. Temple elevated him. Most of the black faculty at Temple looked the other way while this happened, which said that the black academy is completely controlled by the ruling elite of this country. And they exist to confuse and misdirect black opinion. And secondly, the idea of an independent black political party, let me put in parentheses, or an independent black candidacy for the presidency, which is now under discussion within the black leadership circles, must lose all support. Okay. This, in this concentrated form of truth telling, which was supposed to be a secret document, but I remember it, we knew about it almost immediately. Somebody leaked it immediately. And uh, I remember writing about it and what the government was doing. I did not, I did not know the extent. Let me, I don't like to talk a lot about myself. The extent to which I was targeted by the state and how this targeting follows me up to this day. Um, and I'm not, you know, this ain't no victimhood, nothing like that. I mean, you know, once you decide to assume the stage of history on the right side of history, there are all of these um, headwinds you know, you're always fighting. It's like the, Prometh the Prometheus, 
you know, you're always climbing up that mountain. There's always somebody trying to hold you back or push you down. Um, now, 2023. Why this document now? Now, Jaron Mohammed told me that I should announce that uh, he did an interview with me and it should be an article in the final call where we talk about this. Um, there are a lot of things that we want, I want to talk about, ideological trends. Uh, and we'll, we'll get more into this when um, we, we do the conference on Winston's strategy for Black Agenda. Hey, Dick, Eddie and Nate, we got to meet some we'll set up days so we can start the planning for this. Um, but uh, there are three ideological pillars of Winston's strategy for black agenda. The ideological struggle against uh, US imperialism in its major form. Uh, that takes a more concrete form in Winston's essay the Moynihan Kissinger Doctrine, where he links Moynihan's theory uh, that black people are the cause of their own oppression to the Kissinger Doctrine of the expansion of US imperialism. Um, and the other uh, part of Winston's thinking is uh, in the essay from the anti-slavery to the anti-monopoly coalition. And this is where Winston uh, suggests, though, though he didn't have the time to tease it all out, the Lenin-Du Bois synthesis. Frankly, that's where I got it from, you know. Uh, the second pillar of the book is Maoism. and both in the international and domestic arena. And the third is neo-pan-Africanism or cultural nationalism. Those are the organizing elements of Winston's book. Now, how is what Winston said then, how was that received in that period of the 70s? And then how is a, a mode of thinking and a strategy of action basing itself on Winston's thinking, how does that outlook, that way of thinking and the strategy that flows from it how is how does it manifest itself in 2023 specifically in the work of the saturday free school uh, first of all you know uh when winston was i think well i consider him the greatest communist leader in the history of the united states um, and there are many great leaders. I mean, Eugene Debs, he wasn't a communist, but a great socialist leader, 
you know, um, uh, William Z. Foster, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, uh, Mother Jones, you know, all of these great, uh, Big Bill Haywood, these are names that are not known well. Uh, if there was a labor movement of the 1930s, it, it is indebted deeply to those men and women who were uh, in the international workers of the world, the Wobblies. Uh, and then most of them came and became early members of the Communist Party. Uh, but Winston was the most creative and most important thinker. And, you know, when we do the seminar on his book, that question of creativity and thinking constantly anew and looking at world developments and then coming forward with strategy and tactics that are in alignment with the way the world's progressive and revolutionary forces align themselves. Mm. It, was, it was something, we'll, we'll explore that more. But his writings were often met with not open hostility, you know, but this idea of we really don't understand what, what you're talking about or why are you talking about a strategy for black freedom when we are quote Marxist, which means that we have a strategy for class, I put quotes, class freedom as though what Winston was saying was not about class freedom. It's a way to trivialize this very creative thinker. Uh, and I have to say, I, you know, I still feel a certain way about that. You know, you didn't know or did, you didn't want to know. Uh, and it was always, a, so that was one thing. Then there was the hostility from outside of the party. The biggest thing in the party, the Communist Party, was, oh, we don't understand. You know, and that's always the uh, posture of the, quote, well-meaning liberal or well-meaning leftist. Oh, I don't understand what black people really want. Or uh, is, are you talking about nationalism, black nationalism? You see what I'm saying? Of course, I was accused of all of those things. Uh, I mean, at a very young age, I can't, can't tell you I was young and inexperienced, and, but just you know, targeting a person. The other thing is outside of the Communist Party, because as you know, Winston attacked cultural nationalism, and he also attacked the weaknesses in the theorizing Huey Newton and the uh, Black Panther Party. Uh, first of all, cultural nationalism, or what he calls neo-pan-Africanism. And by neo-pan-Africanism, uh, we, can, we can interpret it, it, it as a pan-Africanism which is coordinated with uh, American neo-colonialism. So neo-pan-Africanism and neo 
colonialism go hand in glove, where the revolutionary and radical forces were talking about the freedom of African nations from apartheid and colonialism. The neo-pan-Africanists were talking about identity, you know, uh, and naming, taking on African names, wearing African clothing, and a indifference to the great political battles. But the other thing about neo-pan-Africanism is that at its core, at its essence, is anti-communism. Openly, openly, and violently anti-communist. Now, you don't have a Soviet Union, you don't have a communist party. So they have literally uh, uh, an open field of operation. And so they don't have to at least spout the most reactionary elements of their politics. They don't have to do it because there is no target for it, you know, as there was. But back in the days, uh, can you imagine so-called black revolutionary thinkers who are anti-communist and anti-Soviet? Um, I, you know, Magna, just like you all, the difficulties of getting places, venues are closed to you. Suddenly, people make a 180 degree turn in a matter of weeks. He said, I thought we were tight. <laughs> they said, well, you shouldn't have thought that. <laughs> uh, it is the politics of destabilization and containment and management of the black movement. And there's always, and Winston brings this out, the commonality between the narratives of US imperialism and cultural nationalism and neo-pan-Africanism. And they would do it, just so you'll know, back then they would do it by claiming that they were more black and more authentic than let us say myself. You know what I'm saying? For real. You know, uh, I remember when I was running for Congress and I went to get the support of the Black Political Congress here which was an organization that existed for independent black political action. And they had endorsed everybody except me. And a woman stood up and said, um, they were, the reason they couldn't support me, they said, because I was a member of the Communist Party and running on the Communist Party ticket. And then a woman stood up and said, and his name is not even black. And her name was Jones, her last name. Like that's black. You know, my name is Portuguese because where my father is from. And it was that kind of challenging. Well, we're not gonna even talk about your ideas, but we're gonna talk about how you're not black enough. You know, 
Or the next thing is, oh, you're in an organization with white folk, and our organization is all black. So all of that, as I call it, nickel and dime espionage, always, I, I always felt it. And the reason I'm talking about myself is to, you know, to give you guys a sense, I mean, from my own experience, and I'm certain there are more people that could give examples, but um, it was always something else. I, I felt never good enough, or what, what, what do I do? That's why, you know, um, people like Lucian Blackwell and Henry Nicholas are so important. They never accepted that way of thinking about me and treating me. You see. Um, so, you know, a lot of these people, and I know uh, when we had the Azadi reading group during uh, our celebration of India's 75th anniversary, uh, a couple people, black people came and they said, well, I don't see no black people. What is it? What's, you know, all of that. And I said to poor, but that's where they always come. That's where they always come. And it is to cover up the counter-revolutionary nature of their own position. But it is not apparent because, you know, for us, let's say the free school, we're trying to talk to the broad mass of people. We're trying to create ways of speaking to people in general. And the neo-pan-Africanists are always going behind your back with a narrative, especially when it came to me, Tony ain't black enough. And it's still, that's still, you know, circulating. Um, or, and I, I say this, you know, I hope people understand where I'm coming from, the distraction of uncritically heroizing people of a previous period that acted in reckless ways that did not advance the struggle for unity of the black movement. So young people going back to that and uncritically celebrating profound tactical and strategic and ideological mistakes. And they were, they were. And to associate their uh, embrace or celebration of the mistakes of the past as somehow signifying their radical revolutionary uh, politics. Does that make sense? You know, And they're being black being black. Um, this continues. Now, I'll just end on this. You know, the double crisis at this point, the crisis of neocolonialism in Africa and the crisis yeah. of the ruling elite in this country, yeah. they are inseparable, objectively. 
uh, and to understand this interconnection, uh, and this part of what we, we do in the science reading group, you have to have a philosophical grounding that says that the world is not what you think it is, the world is what it is. That there is an objective world that we can know. And that part of the revolutionary struggle is the struggle to know the world in order to change it. Oppenheimer, uh, Niels Bohr, all of them represented a philosophical positioning which said that the world is only known as probability, statistical probability. And that's why Einstein said, but God doesn't play dice with the world. It is his way of saying that the world is not a set of uncertain probabilities. Some ways, yes, but then there are, quote, laws of nature. I'll, I'll leave it there and, you know, for the postmodernists that have a problem, we can deal with that later. But the idea that everything is not in the chaotic realm of uncertainty, that all we know is probabilities and uncertainties. It is when transposed to social reality, if that philosophy rules the realm of social thinking, then the best we can do is throw in the towel and wait for the godlike machine intelligence that artificial intelligence talks about. That the human being is at the end of his and her uh, intellect and ability to know. And now it's all left up to machine intelligence. And by the way, probabilistic. Uh, knowledge and that's the whole thing we'll come back to that we you know we've been skirting around it and talking about it but social democracy and cultural nationalism and cultural feminism and the uh, the preoccupation with trans uh, transgenderism, all of this is grounded in a similar philosophical outlook, which disables the masses of people and prevents young people from arriving at a position of revolutionary understanding of revolutionary agency, of revolutionary responsibility. If I can't know anything, then I'm not responsible for anything.
The ideological struggle remains the center of the struggle for the realignment of the world and the realignment of politics in the United States. It is the ideological struggle. This is why the methods of the free school anchored to what James Lawson called revolutionary nonviolence or nonviolence in the interests of revolutionary change says that once you go there, then what becomes uh, uh, preeminent is the struggle of ideas. It then disarms the enemy of the people who easily use violence against the people and turns people who should be united against each other. Once you make it clear that our objectives are to unite the people, not to divide them. And that the struggle of ideas can proceed without the violence of civil war, which everybody wants to avoid. Once you prioritize ideas, you're prioritizing humanity. Diminish ideas, you're diminishing the actions of human beings and changing the world. If it's all about me going underground and getting an AK-47 or another weapon to take on the ruling class, if that's what it is, then what about the people? You could say, well, I'm doing this in the name of the people. Well, you doing it in the name of the people. The people are not asking you to do it in their name. Any action on the part of progressive and democratic forces must not act as though the people cannot think, the people as though the people do not know. We act on the basis of our understanding of the people, rooted in a relationship with the people. The two crises, the crisis of neo-colonialism and the crisis of the ruling elite in this country. You know, you get people whose names we won't mention right now, who are so glad uh, to see a crisis in the international arena because they don't believe and they can talk about that and they got facts that you know and so on and so forth everybody has a podcast of course uh and everybody is you know uh talking but one of the things that so many of these people don't see is that these two crises are interconnected. Again, I want to put the crisis of neocolonialism in Africa is linked to the crisis of 
the rule of the ruling elite in this country. This is what this memorandum of 1978 sought to avert the consciousness of the interconnectedness of these two crises. And so they had for the time being disabled the black movement, they had. We suffered ideological and political setbacks in the absence of a great movement. Um, they inserted their own people uh, you know, the black academics, the black public intellectuals, you know, um, and so on, that do not challenge the ruling elite. However, and I'm, I'm gonna end on this. The strategy reached a, 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 a real problem in 1995, because they always said, we don't want a national leader among black people, that black masses of people say, well, that's that's what I associate with, that's what I identify with. And that was the Million Man March of 1995 and the rise of Minister Louis Farrakhan as a preeminent national leader of black people. This had a double hit for the ruling class. One, a national leader of black people who was connected to the anti-apartheid movement, anti-colonial movement in Africa and among Arab nations, but also a Muslim and an outspoken critic of Zionism in the United States and in Israel, and the treatment of the Palestinians. All of this came together in Farrakhan and still is. Uh, however, there's been, you know, still the ruling class never gave up. And, and so going forward, we have to proceed with our understanding of this document and how it is continuing to be implemented at this time. I'll stop there. This is making me think about a lot uh, because I've been seeing many uh, videos of Louis Farrakhan lately as well. And namely, there are two videos that I think of. One is uh, this interview that he had had with uh, Donahue in 2002. And in it, Donahue is, I mean, he's just extremely annoying and condescending in this because instead of actually having to grapple with uh, Farrakhan's ideas, he keeps belittling Farrakhan and saying, why are you against the Jews? Even though Farrakhan is saying like, of course, like they're good Jews, but what I'm talking about are the Zionists and those that are oppressing um, the, the Palestinians, but also the rule in the U.S., um, but specifically, Don Hugh also brings up one thing, which is uh, like people, they have allegations against you uh, for your ties with Muammar Gaddafi. Mm. 
And then Farrakhan laughs and he says, no, those right. aren't allegations. Like I, like Gaddafi is a good friend of mine and he has also loaned uh, the nation of Islam money, money in order to build the mosque that is in Chicago, uh, but also money to develop the nation of Islam economically where nowhere else could they turn like that. Um, but then there's also this other clip that I've been watching lately that I return so often. And this was in 2011, after the assassination of Gaddafi uh, and the assassination by Obama, because, mm -hmm. and Farrakhan talks about it, uh, where, you know, they were supportive of Obama, or, and, I, and maybe Doc, you know more about this, but initially they were supportive of Obama because they thought it was a black brother, you know, they would represent the, the, the causes that Farrakhan himself is a part of the civil rights movement. Uh, but in it, he says, no, like this was, they have turned black people against black people, mm. colored people against colored people, where they assa brutally assassinated Gaddafi. And what did they assassinate him for, if not for his ideas? Mm. Because this is also following Gaddafi's speech to the UN, where he talks about the inception of the UN and how it's supposed to be an organization that represented you know, a world, essentially a world community where all states are equal. Um, and that being in the preamble of the UN constitution. But Gaddafi says after, like everything after that initial is not equal. Why is it that there are five uh, states on the UN Security Council that are able to veto and nullify the decisions of a hundred other countries? How is that equal? And at that time, also speaking about, you know, de-dollarization, taking off, uh, going off the dollar. Um, but your introduction was really important because it also helps me to understand why, you know, a group of us have been leaning towards studying Africa, you know, a place that's so complex and no one has really explained it to us of Asia and Africa, you know, we're talking about an Afro-Asiatic reconstitution of the world uh, that figures like Du Bois and Robeson envisioned in the 50s, 60s, also with Nkrumah, organizing with Nkrumah of this idea of Pan-Africa, along with the anti-imperial and anti-colonial movements that are happening coming out of World War II. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's important because I think the times now are also so a continuation of the work that was started then uh, and continues today because like you said many of these movements were brutally both internationally but also within the united states brutally divided and also suppressed that uh you see yeah the assassinations after assassinations like one of the biggest questions we have is why were there all of these coups in africa mm. um like you said marion and guabe patrice lumumba uh, like what was it that they were fighting for and what was cut down short? But in these times, you see something new that's continuation of the old, but also something new that's emerging that's possible with the rise of both Asia and Africa. Um, and the group of us we talked about, you know, uh, we've been reading uh, both starting with Robeson, Du Bois, like the relation of Black America to the world. You know how Paul Robeson is saying, like the US, they want to mm. uh, uh, put me in a box because I'm going to the world stage and talking about uh, Black America. 
uh, and they want me to want to cut me off from that. And how Du Bois even says like he was he was doing a study of Black America, but then World War II happened, and his and his attention turned to Africa. Like why? Like what is the significance of Africa? And I think what when Du Bois writes the world in Africa, he's asking the question like what is to be the role of Africa in the world, mm. um, and it's starting from that. And we're also trying to understand, you know, these figures like Nkrumah, Lumumba, and even with Nkrumah, he explains this period that he write, writes neocolonialism in '65, and this is following the assassination of Lumumba, and how the state has shifted from a colonial empire to something that is even more nefarious because it's it's hidden um but it's also exciting for our times because you see the emergence of these african states that are returning to these principles even i think you mentioned like recently with um uh burkina faso niger uh niger mali like that reminds me also of the african union uh, or the Union of African States that Nkrumah had envisioned, mm -hmm. where he was saying like all of these states are divided by um, the West into these non-viable nations. Like mm -hmm. we need to come together because one of us being independent is mm -hmm. not enough to counteract mm -hmm. imperialism. Mm -hmm. Because at that time, in Ghana, Guinea, Mali, they formed a union. That's why I think, Doc, you're always referring to Seko Ture, of Guinea, Madiba Keita of Mali, because they envisioned something for the African continent. Mm -hmm. And I think one last point is also that as we're reading Nkrumah and as we're reading about Du Bois talking about Africa, you see the threads of Asia in it too, always referring to Gandhi um, and how they're learning in this time in the 60s and 70s the African and Asian colonial, anti-colonial movements are learning from each other of how to organize, how to speak to the people um, and how to strategize. Uh, and so I think this is a really important time to be, to understand like what is the ideological battle uh, that we're up against. Yeah, I just wanted to add because um... I think it is important that you ended with Farrakhan because they actually, if you Google this memorandum you were reading, Doc, they published it in the final call. And I realize you keep hearing this in their speeches. They, they keep, they teach that they do not want us to be connected to the world. And that is the beacon that they're keeping alive. And I just think even reading this memorandum there, how many more memorandums have there been? I, I, I think there's a new level of sophistication, even given everything we've read and we've seen. I just think everything we've been talking about with ideology, the use of black imagery and African imagery to literally cut black people off from Africa. It's just so insidious and horrible that people know dashikis, but they don't know Modibo Keita. They don't know. I mean, Africa is so great. I just want to just shake people's shoulders. but. I mean, the, instead they give people this opioid, you know, that has nothing to do with um, the actual lives of people. Um, and the other thing, just going off of that memorandum, the mention of an independent black political party, uh, and obviously it's relevance for our times when everybody's the ruling class is, you know, Democrat or nothing else. 
um, I was thinking, I, I really think it's important to study the Black Political Congress, you know, because that is, huh? The Black Political I, I think it's, Gary. yeah, the Gary, Indiana, um, I, I, uh, the, yeah, the Black, the National Black Political Convention um, coming out of 1972. And whatever I've tried to find reading up on it, it's like, oh, it was beset with contradictions and this and that. But actually, the more I think about it as a revolutionary movement of reconstituting American cities, out of which Harold Washington comes, you know, and um, so I, I just feel like that's another. And then it's it's also so relevant to the, to the history or to what's happening today when you have this challenge to the Democratic Party coming from like the, these independent forces. Um, so I just wanted to look at that more. And the last thing I just wanted to say was destabilization, mm -hmm. the politics of destabilization. Um, and, you know, the World Peace Council actually had a conference against destabilization after everything that happened in Chile. And this is why Indira Gandhi did the emergency. And I think this is one of the most misunderstood things um, in current Indian politics is destabilization because I, I just think it's not a factor that people think about um, because of how westernized the intelligentsia has become. But this thing of the politics of destabilization, um, I just think its importance cannot be understated um, and how it's linked to the ideological struggle um, yeah, it's just a lot, just yeah, blowing my mind. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much. I was also like, I kept getting emotional when you're talking because it's so personal what you're saying. Like, it has everything to do with my life and the people who I grow up around. And every one of us in preschool, how we came to free school. Um, and I've been thinking about the, the nonviolence. Um, as a as a as some as a tool that was used by the students in Nashville and Diane Nash and Lawson and like how as a transformative force it was a mode of operation, a framework of mind that allowed people um, to change other people's minds and enemies became friends. Um, and yes how like last week we were talking a lot about the you know prophetic tradition and the same thing with Vericon. um there's still a force in this country that remains steadfast on the struggle on the battlefield um for freedom mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. like yesterday me and dr hanging out which was really fun and we uh kind of were talking about how I guess like what I want to point out is that they couldn't or even if they had or Brett Brzezinski uh, made the memorandum I don't think they could have expected Farrakhan to ascend to um, the position that he is and and also black people don't hate Farrakhan all this, all the um, smears on Farrakhan didn't work. Um, so that's something to say for the for the level um, of the level that the moral compass mm -hmm. actually goes to. Mm -hmm. You know, like the weight of it, rather than just um, 
because you know it's not as simple as like well you can tell a group of people that Obama can be a, the first black president and have the entire group of people believe that the Obama is for you know black people it's never that simple um, and the, and why actually your opening was so um, meaningful to me was that it just explains how um, the ideological struggle is um, something to know about. And part of the problem that I see uh, is the, what you're talking about, the struggle for truth and how important the truth actually is. Um, because I think that in my life, like, like I can only explain it as like, I always explain it this way. When you're growing up and like, you get um, interested in the world and you like are looking for something to believe in. Um, all of a sudden everything becomes so serious and like so um it's almost like the same conversation that baldwin had with the young uh one of the students down in the south or something like that like the student had like come to his room or something and he saw that the weight of the generation, the choices of the generation, the responsibility of the generation was on the student's shoulders. Mm -hmm. um, and it, you know, there's all these like little hamiltons. Does he stay in school while the nonviolent sitting movement was happening? Or does he join the school or join the movement, which also, you know, kind of disregards his own parents, you know, want and wish for the child to continue to get his education and get a degree or whatever. Um, but that choice, that choice, like that responsibility, um, I guess that's the feeling or that's the point that the ideological struggle carries on um, this moment in history that we're all living in and why what you pointed out, well, two things that I want to respond to. What you pointed out with the physics um, discussion um, in brief is that philosophy and the search for the truth is necessary for all things. Um, and I was telling Doc yesterday that physics or the conversation that we're going to have in the book club and discussing Einstein and all these questions about quantum physics um, and string theory is important for me, even though I'm just like an artist, is because of the fact of the truth and the ideas cannot be contained by just um, science, but that the truth actually overcomes, over, uh, or is the guiding factor mm -hmm. to how yeah. any idea or mm -hmm. thing works itself out. Mm -hmm. uh, what's beautiful, um, what's good, and all those other things, it works itself out through the truth. and. Um, the opportunity that the uh, that the science and physics discussion lays out is the opportunity to create a new world, 
the opportunity to develop the new human being. Um, and that's the creative capacity of people. That is the revolutionary capacity of people. And then also what you said about um, the black feminism, uh, you point that out because a bunch of us had seen this documentary shown by the Black Film Festival of um, Nikki Giovanni. Mm -hmm. And the problem of the film is that it lays that there is no hope for the future and that there thus is no future for the young people to struggle for and that we just give up on the world, essentially. And I say it like that because, of course, it's not so simple. Um, her life is complicated, but she too also made choices. Um, and I get uh, kind of emotional about that because I choose to live my life with purpose. So it's hard for me to um, be, uh, <laughs> it's hard to, for me to be easy on somebody, um, even if they have a name or recognition or are older than me. Um, the choices still say something. And to give up completely on the obligation um, of the nonviolent movement is, and also to totally miss it, um, is, is not good at all. And what would, and so you pointing that out for me recognizes that one, there is still an obligation for the truth. Mm -hmm. to that the um, obligation for the truth means that there is a constant need for an open mind. And like, it almost sounds like you have to be a child 24-7 to, you know, kind of like keep your brain a little bit. Um, but it, it means that, uh, like, it actually means something different than what the movie or the documentaries assumes that people should have, which is that the world is something to be known and to um, be proud to have a responsibility <laughs> to develop. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, you know, through the, actually with the Brzezinski memorandum that you're reading, it requires a person to not want to take responsibility and not um, believe that there's anything that can be done um, with history, basically, with the present. Um, but I just wanted to respond to those two things. But there's, yeah, I'm, oh, I, I'm excited for the discussion that we have. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to, to add a few points um, related to what people are saying. But yeah, I think uh, my first reaction of like reading the Brzezinski uh, document was, I was like, yeah, sometimes I feel like maybe we, or at least I underestimate the ruling class <laughs> a little bit in terms of just how like how actually focused and deliberate all of these things were um and i've been thinking maybe similarly along what like seraphina was saying but i've been thinking about like generate like this question of generations too and in terms of like 
it's really interesting to me that, you know, what's happening in Niger right now with this young leader um, in Burkina Faso, I think, um, and all of these other leaders who are coming together is that they're almost like one or two generations removed from, I guess, like the period of the freedom struggle, both in the US, but also in Africa itself with leaders like Nkrumah, Lumumba, um, Madiba Keita, all of those people. And I think one of the things that I was thinking about is that maybe one of the things that we have at least on our side is that the ruling class basically did all of this stuff against the freedom movements, whether it was within the United States or internationally, and then also the collapse of the Soviet Union. And they basically thought that history was done with, that they had won. And I think there was a sense of almost uh, gloating. And I think that they basically thought that they had solved all of the problems. They had done away with all of these leaders and there was never going to actually be any serious pushback against them. And this is one of the things that we have to our benefit, I think, is that there is a new generation rising and you see it, whether it's personally with us in the free school, but also around the world. You know, I, I remember we talked about uh, MBS, like Mohammed bin Salman and uh, I guess Saudi Arabia, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, this like new generation of leaders who are emerging, who in some ways are trying to make sense of what happened in the past generation, but are also finding their way back to the, you know, this first generation of the freedom, the freedom fighters of, especially like the mid 20th century. Um, and I don't know, I just think that that's very interesting and to read the memorandum in light of thinking about that. But the, the other thing I wanted to say is, um, yeah, like I'm very grateful that in the Bandung group that we've been reading about Africa because there's never, I feel like there's never been a better time to study Africa, especially in light of current events. And one of the things that we had talked about recently was how in this broad framing of an Afro-Asiatic reconstitution of the world, one of the things that Africa in particular represents as a vanguard is the developing of a new kind of consciousness or even a new kind of subjectivity in the sense that what was remarkable to me in I think first kind of reading a lot of these African leaders, especially in Krumah, was how, how much they saw themselves not as just national leaders, but through the lens of a pan-African movement, of a whole African continent movement. Mm -hmm. And how I think that there, have, there has obviously been a, like a kind of corresponding pan-Asia movement and ideal in Asia itself, but it's almost like in Africa, it's much more concentrated in some ways. And, then, and I think in that sense, Africa was kind of, is, remains kind of the vanguard of this forging of a new type yeah. of consciousness, a new kind of subjectivity in which you see yourself not just in terms of a national struggle, but literally as all, like basically across Africa, people seeing themselves as the inheritors of this enormous task that had been placed up upon the entire people of, of the entire continent in terms of the division that had been imposed by Europe through colonialism and then the rape of Africa and then the transatlantic slave trade and all these things, but that it was like all of these leaders during the freedom movement saw themselves as, yeah, like we are going to take on this task, which seems almost impossible, but the task of uniting an entire continent, of forging a new, of basically achieving a new kind of human unity that had hitherto not really been seen in human history at that point. 
And I think that that is also one of the, the insidious things about cultural nationalism, which is that you take this idea of being African and kind of degrade it into just a kind of cultural identification. And instead of seeing it as a revolutionary, like literally uh, a project which assumes a revolutionary task and a world historic task of forging a new kind of consciousness that is necessary for a new kind of human being to emerge. And the significance of also the connection between the African freedom movement and also the freedom movement in the United States, which is that the logical, the, it's almost like the logical uh, um, current that emerges from Africa itself in which kind of finds root in the, in the freedom movement in America is rather than black people in the United States increasingly separating themselves from the rest of the American population. Instead, I feel like what is the natural and logical conclusion to draw from the Pan-African movement and the, the move for Pan-Africanism is like African-Americans are the best place, best positioned people in this country to see the possibilities for the forging, the achievement of a new kind of unity within the context of the United States, but also a unity across the American, oh, sorry, the American peoples with uh, essentially darker humanity. Mm. And that, that lesson, that crucial lesson, is what the ruling class sought to attack most viciously. And I, yeah, I'm, I'm just very, uh, very much appreciative of also, yeah, like how, how people have been connecting like nonviolence itself with also the struggle for African unity and for the Pan-African um, idea. And um, yeah, I don't know, I'm just very excited, I think, to continue learning about this and continue studying because I think that it has enormous relevance for, for this time, but also especially for like, what is the, the struggle within the United States, which is essentially the struggle to unite the people. And what are the lessons that can be learned from the uh, African freedom movement and the struggle to unite Africa in that sense, and how is it, um, I guess, relevant for also what we are engaged in within this country, which is, yeah, the struggle to achieve a new kind of unity that maybe has not really been um, possible before, but is made possible by um, what was achieved in Africa, but also what was achieved through the civil rights movement too. I'm sorry, this is that I thought about was how we talked about the presidential campaign mm -hmm. and the candidates not having a positive peace vision um, and how that's like uh, necessary. The lack of it also has to face the fact that you do have to look at either the Nation of Islam or Farrakhan. You do have to understand the civil rights movement. It's almost just like the essential thing. Um, getting back to your point, um, Jeremiah, about the position um, of black people in the in also this situation of of a coming together, of a could of a possibility of a coming together, um, while the ruling class is still set on a renewal or a or an adaptation, not an adaptation, but trying to figure out a strategy to divide the people mm -hmm. and conquer the people, as well as um, uh, continue a certain type of neocolonialism or whatever that they're trying to say that they can continue their consolidation or whatever. But 
that's really important um, to the struggle as now because to what you're saying, for the possibilities of the people, the people are emerging. Um, what leaders will take place will also emerge too. Um, so there still has to be that uh, connection, that ideological and philosophical connection. Um, yeah. Yeah, I wanted kind of off of what you're saying, Serafina. Yeah, the thing I was almost kind of I was basically speechless after your intro, Doc, because there was see the thing that I find really deep is actually and it's in the memorandum, but the way you framed it, Doc, was I think really important. It's it's the thing that it's the interlinking of the crisis of neocolonialism and the crisis of the ruling elite. Because another way that you said it, and it's like the same thing, but it's a different way of saying it, which is also important, is the conscious the consciousness that there's an interlinking of um, something like neo-pan-Africanism or cultural nationalism, and then um, neo the neo-colonial actions and policies in Africa that are divided. Like that connection is so important because the reason why I find it very deep and important is also because, like, for example, you may see commentary like today in like 2023, you may see commentary of people, you know, being kind of excited about what's happening in Africa, but or happening in Nigeria. But what's most important about what's happening in the Sahel region and is the fact that it is because there's an Afro-Asiatic alliance challenging, disrupting a consolidated, a consolidated neo-colonial policy for the past like debt for the past years or decades, which is also means which is also an Afro-Asiatic alliance that is like because it is a disruption of neocolonialism, it is also a disruption of the ruling elite, which is the domestic crisis too like i think that connection the connection between what is happening in africa and what it says about the crisis of the ruling its connection to the crisis of the ruling elite in the u.s is really 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 important because like yeah like i want to bring it back to free school too where i want to bring it back to free school too where it's a it's why sometimes it feels like why why is it that the only people who are so down with free school is the nation of islam like and it actually comes back to not just an afro asiatic asiatic alliance happening on the world stage but it is also a philosophic understanding of an afro asiatic reconstitution of the world and an afro asiatic reconstitution in um, that is emerging because of a law of historical development of colonialism, slavery, like, and I feel like this all goes back to another point. And I think, I feel like I'm just repeating the same two points Serafina was like lifting up, but I'm just phrasing it in my own way. But yeah, I think the second point that's actually most important of the introduction goes back to like free, where free school is attacked because our philosophy is because of our philosophic development, the struggle of ideas. And the point that there is something, there's a philosophic assumption that free school has that allows you to chart a path to freedom of humanity. But there's also at the same time, 
a philosophic assumption on behalf of a ruling elite agenda, which gives roots to both neocolonialism and give roots, gives roots to something like social democracy and neo-pan-Africanism. And that philosophy comes back to this thing of, do you think, do you believe that the world there is such thing as an objective reality of why the world is what it is. Or do you believe that the world, like, or do you simply believe that you view the world as you, as you view it and that there's not an objective reality? That becomes very important because it is the difference between a young person believing that there, like Serafina said, that there is such thing as the truth, but basically that the world can be known. That there is a reason, for example, there's a reason why there are so many coups in Africa, or back to the Moynihan, Moynihan document, or is there why is there a reason that there is a reason, an objective reason for generational poverty or an objective reason for the destruction of black communities? Um, and the, again, like that's the connection of the interlinked connection, the interlinking of neo US, the, I mean, you could say like the US policy of neocolonialism, the policies of neocolonialism, and then also um, ideologies artificially created, such as cultural nationalism, neo-pan-Africanism, social democracy. And like, that is crucial to understand in this time. And like, just like Serafina said, it also brings it back to, um, and the same thing Jeremiah was saying too, but it brings it back to, um, also, like you can even say the election or the tribe of opposition. Um, the last thing I want to say is, I think it's also important to bring in King, Martin Luther King Jr. and his assassination, mm -hmm. because this is this is also from Henry Winston, where this is why it's so deep. Henry Winston says this only just a few years after King is assassinated. Henry Winston, like, like Doc said, the greatest communist leader in the US history, a prophet in some ways so intelligent, just a few years after King is assassinated, he makes the leap and he says, King's assass the, the real assassination of King will not just be his life, it will be the way the entire civil rights movement will be purposely, um, its legacy will be distorted and purposely defined in the wrong ways so that no one after the fact will connect, for example, Martin Luther King Jr.'s leadership in connecting the black struggle actually by connecting the black struggle to the peace struggle what he's doing is he's also connecting the black struggle to the liberation movement in africa and this is something baldwin also says where baldwin says whenever there's assassination in africa like lumumba's assassination it will agitate the black movement in the u.s and that is the worst nightmare for the u.s ruling elite and intelligence community and king like king's significance of broadening a black movement in the u.s to a peace movement, one that will be interlinked to the movement in Africa is so significant because like the same people, the same people who want to get excited about what's happening in Africa and not connect it to an Afro-Asiatic alliance and also not connect it to what's happening in the US, which is the crisis of the ruling elite. They are the same people who believe that King failed. They're the same people who believe the civil rights movement failed rather than and who believe they're the same people who will revert or retreat to a philosophic assumption that the world cannot be known and that that there's no there is no objective reality of the world and that there is no such thing as historical laws of development like the memorandum existing a deliberate agenda like a deliberate revolutionary process that connects 
in the US to Africa and to the world, like anti-colonial struggles to an Afro-Asiatic alliance, like, you know, all of that. They're the same people who will like contribute to the assassination of King and essentially neutralize, be part of a deliberate, as you see in the memorandum, a deliberate neutralization of King so that, which also contributes to like making sure that trying to, to their best ability, make sure that there may not be another King, um, like not be another leader similar to King. Um, but what's also interesting is that despite this memorandum of 1978, who would have predicted like Trump? Yeah. And this is not to say that Trump is King, but this is to say that who would have predicted that no matter how much you try to suppress the black freedom struggle, the way you killed the black community, you tried to kill the black community in all different ways, cultural, political struggles, institutions, no matter the churches, that who would have predicted that he would have gotten a white guy from, you know, a white real estate developer named Donald Trump, that a movement of disenchanted, disgruntled, unhappy, angry people, a lot of white people who are just as upset by the same de the same deindustrial, um, the same policy of deindustrialization, that this would occur. And this is kind of the moment we're in, where who would have thought? And also, same with Africa. Who would have thought that out of the military, no matter how much you just killed the organic leaders, Nkrumah, the list goes on and on, that you would have, and no matter, like this is something you said, Doc, you were like, the reason why you're getting a lot of junta leaders, military, young military leaders, is because the only institution the West kept in Africa that people's that has a connection to people is the military. And despite how much they try to use the military against their people, the, the West has a hard time controlling. It is exactly, they have a hard time controlling the military organization because it is still an org, it is still like an apparatus that comes from the people, like, cause you need to, you know, you need the people to, and so that's why they're coups and then they come from like the military. And it's just, who would have thought that you would get these leaders who for so long you tried to control generations of Africans and who would have thought it's like, you can't like, just like Einstein said, God, God doesn't roll the dice, baby. Like, God, you know, God didn't roll the dice. You're going to get, a, you're going to like, you're going to get a, you're going to get a bunch of young people in Africa who think they have minds. They come from families. They see what's going on in their countries. Who would have, you know, they're going to overthrow what they see is a leader controlled by the West sending their country to ruins. And you're going to get that kind of turmoil and that kind you're going to encounter some, you're going to encounter those leaders. And the it's, it's actually, a, it's like, when you connect what's happening in America to Africa, it is like such an important moment and you need the free school philosophy to connect it, but to also start building, like Henry Winston said, a strategic agenda. Mm -hmm. um, and anyways, I guess the last thing I want to say was like, yeah, it is fun. Like it is kind of like, in some ways you kind of like feel a sense of retribution, the same kind of retribution that Trump talks about. He's like, <laughs> I am your retribution. And here you have the leader, young leaders in Africa, like that general in Nigeria who did the coup, um, like Magna also saw it, but he, and I sent it to a few people, but he said, he was like, the US was like, we're gonna have to stop sending US aid 
to Nigeria if you keep doing this. And he said, like, good, keep your aid because you could use it for the weight <laughs> loss program for Victoria, I forgot, <laughs> Newlands. Yeah. And he said that. And what he was basically saying is like, keep your money because you know what? America needs it more. <laughs> your own country needs it more. Um, so yeah. I also, oh, sorry. Okay, I'll keep this brief. I, I wanted to talk about the, uh, the memoranda, right? It was so interesting to read that because the entire while, first of all, it was hard to actually hear these words being read out from an official government document because it's just so opposed to anything that you would think is just or pro-people. But then it also made me think about this question of authoritarian versus democracy, which is, I mean, this has become the standard defense for the U.S. government for all its wars, <coughs> its entire war-mongering agenda. But then you read this memoranda and it's so clear. I don't think any other state, more than this state, has been against and opposed and viciously attacked the democratic struggle of its own people. You can see that the United States stands out in that respect because it's opposed and attacked every attempt at organizing, you know, any kind of struggle for true democracy and freedom in this country. And I mean, I agree. I mean, you see it in the election, what's happening with the election stuff right now. Also, I mean, even the fact that a democratically elected president is being belittled and humiliated and criminally charged the way that he is. And then, you know, you can have an article in the Nation magazine saying, oh, this person, Cornel West, has no business running and all of that. The, and, you know, the memoranda spells it out in no uncertain terms. You need to have people you can control. You need to plant leaders. You need to infiltrate labor organizations and uh, movements which try and bring people together in a united way. So, I, I mean, I don't know if this doesn't come the closest to authoritarianism and fascism. I don't know what does. I mean, I this kind of controlling of what people are allowed to even dream for their future, what they're allowed to expect out of their government. It's just, I don't think I've seen anything, like, I, I don't know of anything like it. And I agree with everybody who has said that, you know, the mem memoranda basically is yelling out loud about the centrality of the black freedom struggle and of King, you know? It's just, it's, it's just like, they say it so clearly that it boggles my mind that political analysts and economic analysts and all these people who have commentary about political uh, climate of today don't see it the way that we see it. And, you know, it also explains the viciousness with which the black struggle has been suppressed and trivialized and erased from people's memory. And I think this goes to the point that Serafina was also making about the documentary we watched and about black feminism in particular, because I mean, it, it's not about feminism when it's not about women or the mother and how the mother wants to protect its child from, you know, basically a world at war, but also, you know, failing educational institutions, no opportunities. It's not feminism when you're not talking about that. It's essentially an attempt to discredit and take down the leaders of the black freedom struggle the excuse that they were men you know and i mean it's just it's engineered it's not an organic movement and it's been engineered as just another way of taking down the legacy of the black freedom struggle 
and to make sure that it doesn't see the light of day. And I agree with Emily that despite all of these attacks, the fact that you have a Trump today, the fact that you have uh, an RFK Jr. who wants to bring back the legacy of John F. Kennedy and Robert Kennedy, all of these are just like, this is, yeah, this is just further proof that, you know, the forward march of the people will not be stopped by these, um, you know, scheming and this this sort of, uh, yeah, I just want to say that. Yeah. I've, yeah. Oh, no, I was just going to make a short comment. Uh, what Purva said made me realize that the left or so-called left isn't even as smart as the state. Uh, <laughs> because like, like you said, like in this memorandum, it identifies the black proletariat and the civil rights movement as the vanguard, but uh, <laughs> the left doesn't even see that. They completely ignore it. And so like, it can even serve as a, like at these memorandums can even yeah. serve as a yeah. litmus test. Yeah. Like how many memorandums see like the LGBT movement as a threat? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, they created it. They, it was probably a, yeah. poli- it was probably a policy mm-hmm. recommendation in like memorandum <laughs> yeah. five. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to say how jarring it was to uh, read what looked like, you know, a page out of the FBI playbook as, you know, an official government uh, document. And, you know, I was really thinking about that last point in, uh, in the memorandum where they said that we cannot let independent black leaders take the stage, come out of uh, and become popular, become a populist and lead uh, the people in in a direction that is not serving the ruling class. And somehow, you know, it it all clicked in my head why like people like the the chief editor of Jacobin magazine, Bhaskar Sankara, uh, says that, no, Cornell West has to run as a Democrat. He cannot run as an independent. He has to run as a Democrat. And he, when he's asked why, he doesn't have a convincing answer. But there is no convincing answer. I think that this legacy of uh, being against the Black Freedom Movement and the forward march of uh, the struggle for democracy is so embedded in institutions and, and, and these organizations which have these trained, like, you know, he, Bhaskar Sankara, I think he's of Indian origin, right? Yeah, so, you know, neo-colonialism has spread everywhere and it doesn't need to be a black person misleading. It can be a South Asian person misleading or from anywhere else, you know? And it also made me think of that documentary that we watched and, you know, Serafina mentioned this and, you know, one of the points, and I don't know why this was so, this was um, highlighted in, a, in this time, but one of the points that was raised was we cannot look outside our country. We have to fight our battles in the country first. You know, we have to pay attention to our black struggle before we go to Africa. Anyway, this is exactly what we're talking about. You know, we have black people, we have Africans, we are all tied together, but it's the divide, it's the wedge that is constantly being inserted between them. 
which takes priority does our freedom take priority or their freedom take priority and you know king says this is exactly the kind of mentality that we have to try and avoid where every struggle is related to each other there isn't a hierarchy of struggles you know um but then you have to also be very cognizant of what is a relevant struggle <laughs> <laughs> and uh because these black feminist and lgbt struggles um i i i think that when people listen to the free school i, I think that it and i have to offer this explanation quite a lot is that we are not opposed to the idea of uh feminism or climate change or anything nothing we are not opposed to any of the ideas we are opposed to the movements which have co-opted these ideas and made them instruments of war and neo colonialism i think that is an important distinction to be made and thank you doc for that introduction it was, it was really eye opening well i also wanted to say <laughs> like oh I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. You already you in the zone. <laughs> uh, yeah, like you know, I think this conversation is making me think a lot about like many things we have been talking about for a while, uh, and you know, especially like reading the the memoranda and you know your introduction, doc. Uh, it seems like you know this transition from the time that like these were the concrete policies being enforced by the ruling class. and and you know looking at like the whole 50 year period to today where like you know neo pan africanism and cultural nationalism they have taken so much hold over the people i mean it seems like the perfect crime because uh like in you know, like when we we look at uh, these policies and the threat that the that the ruling class considered it becomes very clear what the essence of the black movement in america was and what the essence of the african movements were about you know they were all like the like the essence of these categories were were basically opposed to us imperialism and like you know this was like this was the time when these struggles were uh, at like in their full fledged uh, form and that's when these like you know this unity was built this unity i mean it was principled it was built on concrete ideas of you know peace today and in you know, the us imperialism and you know standing against it on the other hand like you know today when we like you know when we see the examples i think this is what like you know doc you brought up and also i think megna jeremiah were bringing up about you know how this you know this opioid almost of like you know blackness is seen as it's it's seen almost like a metaphysical category and you know it doesn't have any like it's not based on some concrete idea around which the unity is to be built and i mean it's it's i mean no like you know it like it works wonders because uh like at the same time um, it basically deprives people of this history of around which a unity was built and at the same time it it stops any possible uh like in a future unity because like what you are talking about like in, on the one hand there is this mystical blackness where and you know this mystical africanness i mean you're talking about this idea of you know black and africans uniting 
but we have to be clear about what do we mean by black and what do we do we mean by africa like you know, we're not talking about mystical kingdoms of a thousand years old we're talking about the forces for peace today and you know these are the categories through which these leaders winston and king and so on like all of these people and you know all the african socialist leaders this is the categories through which they saw this unity and this is like it seems like you know the memorandum what it was proposing all of it has uh yeah i mean it has taken over like the imaginary or or whatever of like you know of uh of most people that you know this is the way to to you know, attempt to build unity yeah yeah man i i'm i'm very grateful that you uh get uh, showed us that memorandum and walked us through uh, uh really how it was implemented and how you uh kind of lived through it because man this this ruling class man they're they're sharp man they're working hard it got me wanted to wake up early and go to bed late and work weekends to try to keep up uh just 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 the fact that we can see it after the fact of identifying uh after they've done so much damage the forces of let's say uh black feminism or quote unquote or, and uh uh, uh neo pan-africanism is is really a, a genius of henry winston that he was able to identify these forces as they were emerging and and uh taking hold uh and it uh, definitely merits study i'm i'm excited doc uh the the uh the concepts that uh, really stood out to me and that we talked about today relating to our uh study of neocolonialism uh, was the way in which Nkrumah said that uh, the United States ruling class and the ruling class in general seeks to export contradictions, uh, internal problems that they're not able to deal with or they don't want to. They find the solution by putting it, the pro uh, really extending the problem elsewhere. Uh, for example, you know, you, if you have uh, too much exploitation in your country uh, and, and you don't want to let up those forces, you externalize externalize that and bring the exploitation to other places and you can extract wealth and uh, have a better time for yourself here uh, and then uh, really uh, the the uh, the problem that came in America is you know you had a strong working class that opposed what the United States government was doing and so they said we don't want a, a, a strong working class here we want to put those jobs somewhere else we're gonna do some uh, uh, deindustrialization. Uh, and then external, and then that problem happens where you, now you have a China that has a strong working class, and they're like, you know, we don't want to play your game anymore. So we're now we're going to stand up to you, and the problem has come back again. Uh, and so, uh, really, you know, I I I I see that uh, uh, the struggles continue to connect uh, along these lines. Uh, the problems that we have here end up being the problems that people have elsewhere. And uh, it's, it's no no reason uh, no doubt that uh, we are kept from knowing what's going on elsewhere. We're seeing it in a negative light. Uh, I remember when we read uh, I forget the name of the book, but it was uh, King's recount of the Montgomery bus boycott. He said that you know why did this happen here now? Why did this happen in Montgomery in this time and place? And uh, one of the reasons that he gave is that people were aware of what was happening in Africa. And they're like, yo, like we're, that's us too. We're black. Why, why do we have the worst conditions and other people are standing up for themselves? Why not us? Let's do this. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I, I, I think that they, they had to attack people like Minister Farrakhan for uh, being able to connect and raise people's uh, awareness and, and really move in coordination with other 
other people that are struggling because the problems at home uh, are the problems abroad. Uh, similar with King's formulation, violence at home leads to violence abroad and then violence abroad brings back violence at home. Uh, we have to do something about it uh, or we'll destroy ourselves uh, in the process. So uh, really, I, I think now is uh, uh, so critical for us to see the interconnectedness that so many forces are converging, uh, what, whether it be a disgruntled uh, uh, a worker in Appalachia, a white guy in Appalachia, uh, or somebody, a, a young person in, in Philadelphia that can't get a job, uh, seeing themselves as part of what's going on in, uh, in Africa and uh, seeing the possibilities of what we can do in uh, great, great leadership that's happening in, in Asia, especially China. So the possibilities are here, my friends. What a good time to be alive. Yeah. Um, also, just on the, um, what you call it, the memorandum, um, I guess first things first, when you read that, you would think a devil wrote that. And so the Nation of Islam is probably not too far off wrong on that. Um, but it helps explain a lot, I think, about the state of uh, young people in America, just um, how every institution and every outlet for um, interest in the world and desire to participate, you know, having cut people off from, uh, yeah, being able to participate in society and know the world helps me understand why um, young people are in the state they find themselves in. But um, I guess one thing also being that, um, what was I gonna say? I guess just looking at the connection between um, the United States and uh, the rest of the world, how um, this uh, like brutalization and extraction of great wealth um, allows the United States to um, basically, I don't know what, what the word would be, but allows them to do what they please with the American people, um, you know, rather than being able to build anything here. So just on these links that um, are seen. And so I guess I look at um, like the task of, uh, of, I guess for one, seeing that connection at the American people and the people of uh, Africa and Asia and seeing that these related issues how um, in which we're seeing that a people opposed to, I guess, you know, the inhumanity of, of those policies, but also the, um, the way that it impoverishes both people um, plays into each other. Uh, uh, in that struggle, but also just um, the question of also the American people, because through that document, I really see, saw how the ruling class was willing to basically drop a nuke on the American people, but, you know, destroy American society to destroy the black man and woman of America, um, essentially. And so now that everybody's in this uh, sorry state, I guess, um, it, it shows me like, I guess the, the potentials and, and why I guess it seems relevant to go back to uh, nonviolence and King and all of that 
and that the options left for the American people are to unify or if the ruling class wins a civil war and a reconsolidation of, uh, of the ruling class. So um, looking at the potential for unity in the work of Martin Luther King Jr. and them, um, in the weakening of the color line, I guess, um, which brings up the new possibilities for unity of the working people of America and just generally the working, generally the American people. Um, but um, what was I gonna say? Ooh, I think basically um, there is that like the work of 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 King and nonviolence in that, but also specifically what people were mentioning about um like truth and um what do you call it not relativity or what what do you call it like postmodernism or something um but yeah just was that not, not equivalency i don't remember yeah but basically what people are saying about the assumption that um about who's the problem in america right um in this this is a part of the strategy that the ruling class is using, I guess. One of the last things that they really have a hold on people, I guess, that uh, has to be targeted. Um, just that idea about who's responsible. And I'm sure if people were to see this document, they'd be like, God damn, man. You know, it, it, things start to fall in place. So, you know, just... Um, all these things um, leading to uh, yeah, I'm not sure how to add, but yeah, just all of this stuff, like these things that are um, in place, just essentially looking at like strategically, like what's left, um, what's left on the table for the American people to unify, um, and what what tools are at our disposal because like it looks really like the end is near and and things like that in a positive way the end is near right not in the doomsday way uh, <laughs> can i add something to what nathan's saying i know i know you've been waiting to hump up i please please just let me add this one thing <laughs> and then i'll segue to you but i yeah I really like what Nathan just said because it reminded me of something free school has talked about in the past, which I think is given more weight, which now has more importance with what Nathan's saying and with the memorandum. Because actually, if you think about it, like you know that part in the memorandum where they're specifically saying like a policy a policy recommendation is that we use existing labor institutions like the AFL CIO to purposely diminish organic black labor leadership that because it is a labor union, the you know, the, the nature of the black proletariat, there's going to be black leadership in every union because they're black workers. Using the AFL-CIO to deliberately um, target and diminish black labor leadership and raise up white le labor leadership and also try to promote disunity to prevent like, and try to in, like in different ways, strategies, basically divide the white and black worker. What's interesting, this goes along with what Nathan was saying and also what's interesting with like, you know, this thing of who would have thought that despite how much you tried to diminish the black proletariat's leadership, 
you still will get, you still, because of, you know, laws of historical development, the people will, including white people will be unhappy with like the policy of deindustrialization and everything we're seeing today with the triad of opposition. What's interesting is despite how much they try to divide black and white labor because of actually what I see, and I've said this before in free school, what you see in a lot of labor unions is actually a coalescing of black and white labor once again together being unhappy with this like BS labor leadership of their unions. And which is why there's also a new strategy to reinscribe the color line. Um, reinscribe a color line that was actually um, like, that was actually reduced because of the civil rights movement in the country. And so I just wanted to add that in because I was like, oh, actually what Nathan's saying is really deep about what's happening with the American people, like what's left on the table for the working class, because actually there's a reason, I don't know, I'm just trying to bring in that there's also deliberate reinscription, reinscribing of the color line. And of course that's connected to also cultural nationalism, neo-pan-Africanism, everything we saw with the rage against the war machine rally and the opposition to it. Go ahead. Uh, okay, yeah, I just wanted to briefly say uh that uh, one thing I really got out of uh, Doc's presentation, and I think a few people have mentioned this, this idea of responsibility, and um, we discussed this last week as well, the responsibility for the injustices that exist. It is very important because the ruling class is always trying to absolve itself of responsibility through the deployment of these uh, uh, false and obscurantist ideologies. And I think this idea of identifying responsibility is very much linked to our philosophical work. As far as I understand the concept that we are getting from Kant and Hegel's debate, the thing uh, in itself, identifying and the struggle to identify and understand the thing in itself is very much tied to this uh, struggle to understand responsibility. And things like this memorandum, all of the things which are laid out, the ways in which the elite has wreaked havoc on the country, the people, and the world is tied up with this struggle to understand the thing in itself. And similarly, as we discussed, the uh, contradictions and the, the flaw, deep flaws of social democracy and cultural nationalism and Trotskyism and all these other ideologies is very much tied in, I think, with the fact that they have abandoned that struggle to identify the thing uh, in itself. And I think that this is connected then, I mean, you know, there's a lot of history that's happened uh, uh, that Doc talked, uh, touched on, you know, for obviously from 1995 and then to 9-11 and then the destruction of many countries from 9-11 and then ending with the destruction of Libya and that being a turning point. It was actually in right after the destruction of Libya, then the uh, proxy war began in Syria and was an attempt to destroy another country. And that's where these BRICS nations began to draw the line. Uh, you know, in 2011, uh, part of the, the reason Gaddafi was so isolated and it was because at that time, the countries which were on the UN Security Council, uh, Russia, China, uh, South Africa, Doc mentioned, but also Brazil, Russia, India, and China, uh, with it, China and Russia being permanent members who have veto power, those four countries all criticized the operation, but then abstained from voting. They'd, and if they had voted against, they could have at least stopped security, especially uh, China and Russia, could have prevented the Security Council. 
uh, from t uh, at least authorizing this uh, operation. And uh, from what I've heard is that uh, Putin himself seeing the video of Gaddafi being executed, basically like the lynching of Gaddafi, that that really impacted him. And then he started to turn very anti-NATO. And, and then it was about a year later that BRICS itself, I think, was formally founded, I believe, in Delhi. And uh, so it was a realization by these BRICS powers that now there has to be a line drawn. And they began, I think, more so to understand uh, who is responsible for this situation uh, that was prevailing in the world. And I think that when we discuss this idea of the uh, Afro-Asian reconstitution, oh, one other thing I wanted to say. So the, the point about responsibility and the thing in itself, the, the events since the fall of the USSR exposed the anti-communist lie, which is that they always, the US elites always blamed everything happening, whether it was the civil rights movement or Bandung or the struggle for peace and development. They all said that the USSR was behind it and the communism was some communist agenda was behind it. But then even though the USSR uh, fell in the early 90s, these struggles continued, whether it was the Million Man March, whether it was uh, Libya's struggle to unite Africa and the Pan-African currency, all of those things exposed that lie. And that's also why I think it is important to identify that thing in itself, the ruling class, the way in which it acts, the system is, is not uh, constructed merely to oppose communism, but it's constructed to oppress the people mm -hmm. and resistance will continue uh, regardless of you know whether a communist power exists or not. And that's a very important thing. And so now when we come to the uh, what post 2012 into our present time with Sahel and BRICS and all that, the what we are understand what we are calling the Afro-Asian reconstitution. And from what I'm understanding, the other concept from Hegel, the struggle to achieve the thing for itself that is where we are moving we want the world to move mm -hmm. the struggle to achieve the thing for itself is going to be i think is tied up with the afro-asian reconstitution and you know we've talked about for black america to, to become a thing for itself and for the american people the creation of a new american people become a thing for itself and so for me that really uh, you know vindicates the this need to turn to philosophy because at the core you can understand this the importance of this deep scientific thinking uh, whether it's in physics or politics, because these concepts are very significant for identifying who the enemy is, what real structures of oppression exist, and the ways in which the people can move, and the states, the people, movements can take action. And it, it is all uh, predicated on this understanding. And and these concepts are very crucial, I think. Think in itself, think for itself. And I would like Doc to correct me if I if my understanding if my, if I'm if I'm correct understanding these concepts uh, in my application. Joe, just a small thing. You know, the Kant is the one that separated the thing in itself from the thing uh, for itself. Um, and uh, you, you're right, uh, uh, Kant said the thing in itself cannot be known. We only can know the thing for us, phenomenon that come to our senses and so on. Hegel, and you, you're right about this, Hegel said the thing in itself can become the thing for us. And from the standpoint of political struggle, the world that is not known can be known, hence, the thing in itself, as it were, the unknown can become the thing for us. Uh, and I'll just one small thing as we go 
We talk about the science, uh, the quantum theory and string theory and the discourse on artificial intelligence, especially artificial intelligence. The thing in itself can only be known by super powerful God-like uh, machines that humanity cannot know the thing in itself. And that's what they're saying. And that's what the theorists of quantum mechanics were saying, that the thing in itself is a statistical probability. And we're going to get more into that. But I agree, I agree with the, you know, the direction of what you're saying, Johan, uh, to disarm the people, to disable humanity, and to say that all of the talk of the past about what people can do, what the working class can do, what, you know, et cetera, all of that is for naught and the result of, quote, in their words, naive thinking. Maybe we could read all the comments um, and then, and then, because then it'll be a good segue to talk about compliance reading. Can you move closer to the microphone? Yes. Okay. Is this better? <laughs> okay, cool. So Todd, um, Ryan Wagner, Christopher Romero, um, Marius Trotter, Jacob Carpenter, Philip Logan, Ware Pilgrim, all say good morning. And let's see. Christopher Romero said, wait, the Anthony Montero will be at the Chicago event? Wow. That's true. Um, Ryan Wagner said, 78% of the people of Niger support the anti-colonial policies of the new military junta government, as well as 73% who support the new military junta government remaining in power until another election can be held. So the people of Niger have made themselves clear. No intervention. Um, let's see. Then he continues, I think last week I commented that COINTELPRO never ended. But a more accurate and precise statement would be COINTELPRO never ended, it only expanded and intensified. And then Joel Bachelor has a comment on hip hop on Facebook. So he says that rather than black stratification being, I guess, relevant to hip hop in general, he says it is a particular type of rapper that's been economically stratified whereas hip hop and its legitimate pillars of black expression have not been. So he says, hip hop and its pillars have been under attack since the advent of Public Enemy in 1988, so that hip hop had to be subverted. Um, this idea of the glamorous drug dealer, the over-sexualized pimp, or hypersexual bag-chasing black female rapper are, were specifically designed to fill the prison pipeline and advocate for sexual irresponsibility. And so Joel Bachelor says everything that has been, I guess, used as an example for why hip hop has been channeled by the ruling class has also been used against hip hop. Says that real hip hop's high art is the most important sonic and lyrical form of anti-imperialist, anti-colonialist black expression. It's scholarship in its true form. It is the 
black prophetic musical legacy to be created by black people because it is also being created and expressed in Palestine, Syria, Afghanistan, all over Africa, Iran, and in the radical trenches of Europe. Um, he says he challenges us to listen to Immortal Technique, Jean Grey, and of course, Public Enemy, who is the most important, most relevant, sonically destructive real hip hop group ever. And then, let's see, BK says, great history lesson and overall analysis, thank you. Um, and then he said a while ago, I hope those African nations don't just swap one colonizer, that is the West, for another BRICS. Both are, um, I guess, in Africa seeking their own resources. And there's a very long discussion happening in the comments that has been going on for over an hour, um, I guess, starting off of this point with BK, um, Christopher Romero, and Ryan Wagner. So I'll try my best to summarize. Um, Christopher Romero responded saying that he thinks that BRICS and the West, like the West neocolonialism, are completely different circumstances where making a deal with BRICS doesn't cede sovereignty. And then BK says, yes, on the surface, but within BRICS, there are still elites. Um, and then Ryan Wagner says, among nations in Africa, Algeria and Egypt both just submitted applications to join BRICS. And it's 22 countries from the global south and maybe 40 plus nations that have expressed interest in joining BRICS. And BK, I think, says that he is just skeptical to accept BRICS as a benevolent alternative to Western imperialism and asks, will BRICS just turn out to be a kinder slave master? I don't know. And he cites, um, he says that there are human rights complaints from the people of many African nations um, against Chinese industries from, quote, independent media. And then Christopher Romero says that he would take those human rights allegations with a grain of salt. Um, and that a lot of what he's seen is just like BBC mainstream media making claims. And yeah, so I think that's the BRICS thing. And then there's also, after that, it moved into this question of whether there's a global caste system based on race, where the darker you are, um, the less you are. And that, let's see. And BK says that there's a professor, CJ Mumford. Clarence Mumford. Clarence Mumford from the University of Guelph, who wrote a whole dissertation documenting this global reality of caste, which was written about 30 years ago. And yeah, so he asks, what is the genesis or the basis of this global caste system and how it has been able to permeate the entire world? And let's see. So yeah, and then I think it's just a question of what actually is class and then how is race, I guess, a certain form off of class. And so there's just a lot of different ideas going on in these comments. Let's see. Yep. So I think that's all I have to read. But I think that the BRICS thing is an interesting question because I feel like that is exactly the ruling class propaganda, which is to try to say that China is nothing better than the West and that they're doing exactly the same thing because there is such a thing of like investment. And I think that in some ways that's exactly what the US tried to say about the Soviet Union and tried to say like, oh, there are these two like big power blocks. But I think Nkrumah is very clear in neocolonialism where he says, actually we welcome investment. 
we welcome foreign capital. Like we are not discriminating against foreign investment at all. The question is, what does it actually go to? Like, is it actually going to help us develop and industrialize, or is it meant to permanently keep us subjugated and in a position where like we have, we export raw goods, we import expensive manufactured goods. And so I think that this question of like, what is BRICS actually doing and what role does it play also in the global financial system, which I guess expanded with this whole like dollar manipulation and like this threat of using the dollar as a weapon to constantly subjugate the African countries. Like, I think that that can't be underestimated. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I feel like maybe people are welcome to respond to these comments too. Just to add, I think, yeah, from, I guess, our understanding of neocolonialism and, like, the first, I don't, I don't know, I guess, like, the first two chapters of it that we talked about recently in, like, the Van Dung group, it's, like, to my understanding, the primary mechanisms of neocolonialism are essentially dependency, keeping countries dependent, and, uh, deindustrialize like like to prevent them from going through stages of development and industrialization and then the other mechanism of neocolonialism is division which is to balkanize all of these states and to keep them all divided and i feel like the i guess the assessment of whether it's china or these other uh, new emerging global institutions and uh sets of organizations that are emerging is do they enforce like basically dependent, like further dependency and like de like preventing de like industrialization, especially of the the poorer countries in Africa, and do they prevent uh, unity or are they actually mechanisms mechanisms by which all of these African countries can actually move forward out of that state of neocolonialism, um, and yeah, 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 and I also think that um, it's actually. In reading group, we were talking a little bit about how Nkrumah, in some ways, like in this, I guess, arc of like Marx, Lenin, Du Bois, Nkrumah, like it's actually very important, we think. Um, and part of it, I think, is that we're really trying to figure out like what exactly is neocolonialism, because mm -hmm. it's kind of, it's a term that can be used and applied. And I think that people can say like, oh, like Africa has been kept in a neocolonial state which is true, but I think also what Nkrumah is saying is that the project of neocolonialism that was basically developed and honed in Africa was in like the 50s and 60s, and that mm -hmm. system has also evolved to an extent, and it's very much tied to, I think, this thing of American hegemony and like financialization and ultimately the trajectory of deindustrialization that we're in now. Um, but I think I want to say that because I think Nkrumah's neocolonialism in that book is really important um, for understanding like where we are today because I think a lot of these like Trotskyites or like all these people who are like oh China is imperialist they want to stick to like this thing of like oh there are just like big countries with like big monopolies or something and they want to I think limit the discussion mm -hmm. where now I think the financial system like basically the world system that we live in has been so shaped by the United States and distorted into these like ungodly <laughs> positions. And I think like China, BRICS, like Russia, and basically the entire global south or third world is 
responding to decades of neocolonialism and not just that, but also like this thing of globalization and, and neoliberalism. And like now, like also this whole like neocon thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I just think that Nkrumah, the neocolonial book, Zen book is really interesting, although we've only yeah, read like the first two chapters. Um, if there are any more comments, um, maybe it's, it'll be a good time to give a uh, report back on a report back on the science reading group. Uh, may I just say one thing very quickly? And you know, um, my good friend Joel Bachelor, his I know he's a he's a he's a cold blooded old school hip hop head, and um, I've been you know. Um, uh, Showtime has been playing a lot of uh, episodes of the celebrating the 50th anniversary of hip hop, and you know I've learned I've learned a great deal, and I have to say to Joel that maybe I'm a little more uh, empathetic to your position than I previously was, but uh, and I but I agree with Joel here, and I think to understand in some ways the crisis, the ideological crisis of black young men and women, you must understand hip hop as a, a site of ideological struggle. And I would say this, and perhaps, and Joel, have, he can correct me. I think it is the fact that generally hip hop artists have not stepped up to the ideological struggle, but have accepted the ideological agenda within hip hop that serves the ruling class of this country. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, you don't have Public Enemy, you don't have KRS-One, you don't have Wu-Tang Clan and some others, of course, but you have a, an almost uh, solid wall of um, anti-Black, stereotype uh, images that are being sold to young black people and to the society as a whole. And there is not, maybe I'm wrong about this, Joel, or anybody that can help with this. Uh, where is the fight back from within hip hop? Where is the fight back? Where's the opposition within hip hop? Uh, I don't know of, of one. While the ruling class has aggressively pushed within hip hop its agenda. And the other thing is, uh, and I don't know that it has been spoken or written about very much, is uh, was the era, which a, a 30 year period of cheap money, money at the lowest interest rates, mm. What role did that play in, Holly, in the Hollywood entertainment industry in promoting hip hop as a global phenomenon? Mm. Um, and I cannot, and, and I'll put it this way, I've not had it explained to me how a genre of youth culture I know a lot of young people, this is the greatest music ever produced. This is all this, that, and the other. These are the greatest musical geniuses of all time. Um, 
Well, I, you know, uh, it leaves me with a sense that too many young people within music and culture are prepared to capitulate if they are paid. Um, and that's the problem. And so I, maybe Joel can respond to this. Uh, you know, the very things that we were talking about, colonialism, neo-colonialism, the crisis of neo-colonialism, the crisis of the American ruling elite, yada, 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 on and on. Um, these are not topics that you'll find discussed in hip hop, which means that these are not topics that most young people, young black people in particular, are concerned with. And that's where the problem exists. Um, I also wanted to say something briefly mm -hmm. about uh, also in the memorandum having to do with the black capitalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yes. how mm -hmm. that intertwines with the cultural, um, you know, continuation, I guess, or like the over. Mm -hmm. um, the, the over continuation of a, not just it's not like hip hop mm -hmm. but it's like the over ghettoization uh -huh. the over uh -huh. um very important that kind of thing yeah and i mm -hmm. wonder mm -hmm. i really wonder how much that will that kind of culture would continue in some senses the i don't know how long it would last only doing to it's only kind of like a feeling um and there's a lot of things that play into it and i think the lgbtq thing plays into it too mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. like we talk about mm -hmm. with baldwin he didn't present himself as over overtly feminine mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. just because he was gay mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. but i know mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. people who are mm -hmm. either trans or queer have that overt feminism or that overt mm -hmm. feminine quality mm -hmm. um, because of the LGBTQ thing. And, you know, everything gets into that. The hair, mm -hmm. the nails, mm -hmm. the clothes, mm -hmm. and that's what you buy. Mm -hmm. That's where the money goes. Um, and I know that there's always been like alternative or like, you know, kind of people who want to either get different options or either natural things or whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but from, I was thinking about how much longer it would last um, culturally and, and how much, you know, people, people's looks would change um, if the money wasn't so tied into um, it, trying to promote one certain type of look Right. And mm -hmm. the social media mm -hmm. goes into that. The, you know, music goes into that. Because I know that in the industry, like people complain about how women are overly sexualized and all that other things. But I do see that there's more concessions than, um, you know, people who are standing up against anything anyway. But I, would, I, just, I just wanted to briefly mention about how black capitalism was also used as a distraction and how most of the time entertainers use distractions or they their concessions lead to distractions more than um, any 
real articulation of a struggle against the ideological um, promotion of basically anti-black, anti-human behavior. Um, but if I could uh, add to uh, what y'all are saying about uh, hip hop, uh, I remember reading this uh, this uh, uh, page in the final call that came out that was uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan saying, will the rapper accept the responsibility of leadership? And uh, co coming, coming from uh, a very high authority himself, uh, basically what we're, what we're talking about, about how uh, the, the rapper has been elevated to the highest uh, status in society for uh, youth, especially black youth uh, as an authority uh, for the kind of person that you can be and should aspire to be. And uh, basically the, the thesis of uh, this article is, is that uh, this tendencies are, have been self-destructive uh, to black people themselves and to the United States in, in, in general. And uh, uh, you know, Minister Farrakhan is coming with all this love. You see, you see the picture of him, and he's like sitting down in his suit, and he's smiling and happy. And you have these other rappers, and they all look real tough and 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 thug, and <laughs> it looks cool together. But uh, I mean, really, uh, the strongest looking person in that picture is is a smiling Minister Louis Farrakhan, uh, who has the power of love on his side. You know? To, to make yourself hard is to, is to be unable to deal with the problems of life. And so you have to you have to harden yourself to protect yourself. But when you have love, you have the strength. Uh, you have the strength uh, that is unmatched. That you can uh, ha have this attitude of your arms uh, wide open, ready to to heal. So uh, I, I think he uh, uh, exemplifies it and welcomes uh, all people to uh, be a part of a, a new people and the rapper can be included. Uh, they even have, uh, uh, there's a, a particular rapper that I think is in the Nation of Islam. His name is uh, Golden Child. Uh, Electronica. Oh, I guess Jay Electronica. I didn't even know he was in the Nation, but they're not opposed to a certain style of music uh, if, if it is directed uh, in a positive direction. Uh, so uh, I, I think they want to love people as they are, but the better version of yourself, the best version of yourself. And uh, now I, I, I I'm like, how, who am I to disagree that, uh, that music has a uh, capacity for something positive. Uh, yeah. You know, in relationship to this rapper question and the NOI, I just want to pose a question about ice cube because ice cube used to be a gangster rapper in the eighties and the nineties. And uh, he used to be really close to the NOI, along, you know, Snoop Dogg, the other West Coast gangster rappers. Um, <clears throat> but now you see Ice Cube, he's a child movie star with the uh, Are We There Yet series. And Snoop Dogg is doing these uh, commercials with Martha Stewart. Um, and I just want to know, like, what happened there? <laughs> How did these men who were so hard in the 80s and 90s, like, how did, uh, you know, some people who are more critical than me might say that they were uh, emasculated, um, you know, by Hollywood a little bit. Um, they're, they're sort of just, you have to remember their characters, I guess. But to go back to my question, you know, what happened? <laughs> Thank you.
I think a subject for open investigation. <laughs> oh, wait, I was also going to say something really briefly, but this is just the more of an add on to anything. I know, like Doc, you had mentioned also. Well, I mean, I feel as if this discussion of hip hop has to be talked about in relation to this memorandum. And like we do, we are, we're drawing a thorough line here, even though, yes, the timing of it is like very much prompted by yesterday, supposedly being like the 50th anniversary of that block party that birthed hip hop, those Jamaican youth, like, you know, <laughs> DJing and for the first time and b-boying coming out on the scene and then graffiti. Sure, sure, beautiful thing. <laughs> but I think that um, what I also feel like is part of an open investigation as well is like the fact that hip hop is also exported very systematically to, to places like Africa, also to Cuba. Asia, or to Cuba, also through the guise of we were looking at, you know, National Endowment for Democracy grants that are fomenting the, you know, what might be very organic, you know, artists exploring hip hop as a means for quote unquote, um, the voices of dissent and quote unquote democracy. It's all, I think, interesting to know that like hip hop is very active in places like Nigeria and in South Africa. And there is a sense in which I think there's both a fascination from young people all over the world to know, I guess, America, but the product through which or the, it is is done through specifically something so, especially something that has been so flooded with cheap money, as Doc, you've been saying, like, what is that impression then? Like, I mean, there's also a sense of responsibility that I think hip hop has yet to take for the world. But all that's to say, open investigation. Um, well, yeah. to me also, it just seems like now people want there's a new culture people are looking for something new at this mm -hmm, point mm -hmm. there's i think that's not a question of if you like a certain type of music more than it is about what really is the music that will be produced um and not produced by the way of industry or the you know the sense that production is manufactured but what is the heart of the people that make the music and what is the essence that people will create any music by? Which also gets back to what you're saying, Kathy, to the philosophy of, you know, the framework, the framing of the music. So, I mean, it's not a question of the poetry, it's not a question of the instrument, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. in the frame mm -hmm. of mind that the instrument or the writing is created by. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And in that way, there's also, that's why I was also thinking about how much the, that, you know, things are kind of still in flux. Like, yes, it's true, hip hop has been exported, but we've also taken a lot of culture from Asia or I guess more in the countries that, you know, the US had relationships with. But that being said, the it hasn't it's up for investigation investigation because it hasn't been decided on what principles do we guide culture what um what is the point um of the things that we do um mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. you know like even with our discussion about kanye like yes he was and even with people like Chance the Rapper, I saw that he was like, um, he had this like Africa tour 
Um, but all of it was guarded as guided philosophically by Marcus Garvey and how like, oh, he's able to promote like black businesses um, overseas. Um, but what that also just shows me is that like, okay, well, Chance the Rapper, you had made, you, you write as if like, you know, you think about the world, but do you, is it, what do you live by? Like, what are you gonna, um, because are you just showing me that it's nice to be rich and, you know, you could share your music or whatever with other people who want to be rich too? The culture of being rich to me is also like a dead end, but I don't, uh, that hasn't been decided yet. Is it a dead end or not? Can we still attain a rich lifestyle? Um, and that's the whole thing with the hair, with the clothes, with everything. Um, even if Kanye produces an entirely different line, you know, in Adidas, <laughs> is that still um, going to be, is that an important change? Or is that just a concession to yeah. Nike or whatever? Yeah. So the questions yeah. about culture has to do about philosophy. Yeah, speaking of philosophy, um, I was thinking that we could do, if people are okay with it, that we could end with um, the report back from the science reading group. So, Shambarto, I think you were going to do it. Yeah, okay, I, I can start us off, but after everyone has, um, has been thinking about it for a while, uh, so everyone can add to it. But, you know, like I think we have been talking about it today already, when we, you know, all these questions of like, you know, what it is to know, how do we know and, you know, the nature of reality and how do we, like, you know, how do we understand the world that we live in? Um, not, you know, not simply through, uh, like, you know, not simply through what we observe right in front of our eyes, but, you know, like the fact that, you know, the truth lies somewhere deeper than that. And, you know, I think we have been thinking about these things for a while. Uh, especially with our readings of you know philosophy, which we have been constantly doing, uh, but like in 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 particular, we had been reading Hegel for a while in preschool. But um, anyway, so in, like you know, from uh, like all of these discussions, we have uh, started uh, like a reading group, like you know, studying science, um, like very recently, and you know, we're going to be reading every other week. And like you know, with this reading group, we start from. Like, you know, I think like, you know, we start from two broad assumptions that like, you know, science is like we're talking about science in the broadest way where we think of you know, science as uh, like, you know, science representing uh, like the human method to know the world, to know the natural world. And, and, you know, and also, and, you know, this method of knowing also plays a role in trying to change it. So you know, we're thinking of science as like a method to know the world and to change it. And the other thing is, you know, the question of you know knowledge and its purpose, and like you know, starting from the idea that you know knowledge, the production of knowledge is not separated from the purpose of knowledge. And you know, like knowledge is always, it's always moving towards ends, like you know, towards very human ends. For, for the ends of humanity and like you know these are the like the place that we start from and uh, like we uh, we started reading um you know this text by um this book by Peter Void who is 
who is a like you know who is a particle physicist but mainly a mathematician and you know he like his thesis uh i mean in like a 20 year old book that he wrote is about you know what string theory which which is understood to be the vanguard of you know theoretical physics uh like he writes about like what string theory really means whether or not it is a theory whether or not it it can be considered a scientific theory and you know he titles his book as you know not even wrong uh, which is to say that you know like going by one of the definitions by which we understand science as you know one of the human pursuits of knowledge like one of the criteria is that you know you have to be able to prove a theory to be wrong and that's what constitutes a theory to be scientific so you know we started with this but uh, i think uh, like you know with our discussions for a while and like you know with the actual reading group the first time we met was a couple of weeks back i think it shows that i think we uh, in discussion we sort of figured out that the nature of science today the nature of string theory and like the leaders of science they are really exposing that they are going uh, like you know they are, are are basically opposed to these basic assumptions from which we start because science is no longer um considered to be a tool by which we understand and predict and change the world and other question about you know like what the purpose of in you know, all of this is what's the purpose of science today and like in you know, one of the like one of the uh, i think the characteristic features of you know string theory today is it rests on this bedrock which claims that you know there are many possible um ways to understand like you know like there are many ways to understand the, understand the universe that there are you know many possible truths and you know like by tweaking um this theory here and there you can get you know any uh, kind of answer that you want and this sort of you know go by uh this i think it's a tautology called anthropic principle which basically states that like you know we can know only what we can know but essentially the the like the ideology behind it is that the capacity of human knowledge is finite that you know we can only know so far and not beyond and uh, like you know this is very much like you know this is extremely important today because um like doc was saying before that you know this um this um ideology in physics is being carried forward to ai which you know which is um, which is you know which is seen in many circles as you know like the next revolution in science so to speak the next revolution in technology but it brings into question what the human being means and what it means for the human being to know so you know like we have been uh, like we started this reading group with this idea that you know these are questions that uh, these are questions that you know motivate everybody these are questions these are not uh like you know technical um details these are not questions of technique and technology which are the subject of experts alone but these are questions that affect everybody and you know like it should be it needs to be dealt with i mean it needs to be dealt by everybody to come at you know to come at how we think about all of these questions and i think like one of the like you know we'll keep um talking about this for a while but i think one of the like the main things we sort of um discovered while we start like you know while we studied the history of science especially in the last century 
is that you know there were serious philosophical questions that were left unresolved and this sort of like recap like this capture of science by the ruling class it started with the cold war and all of these philosophical questions they were being um, you know debated in the us and in soviet union and all over the world really but these are the questions that i think they contain in many ways the seeds uh, which can show where science is to go next because like you know this like the way um like the way science is often thought of in these circle in you know in in the ruling class basically is is almost like a continuation of you know the whole end of history um, way of thinking about the world we're talking about the end of science okay like you know we have known all we can possibly know and i think this is like you know this is uh like in its most basic form it's anti future it's anti human and i think we are like you know like we have been uh like we have just started and and we'll keep talking about this but i think the idea is that you know we are trying to formulate how to think about a science for the future um i can stop there at this kind you know on feeling things yeah i'm also excited about this um opportunity to learn um because um doc is to carry around his old books about einstein and we get to read like stuff that we're not supposed to read and that we're not taught to read in anywhere um and i just want to overemphasize the um creative nature of the the, the book club and like the opportunities i guess it allows for all of us to in a way be artists and use what we know in it um in what at least it is that we do whether it be in science or whatever um so i just wanted to let, put that back on the table i think i just want to add one one thing from my recollections from the first meeting we had the first meeting we had we mainly like shambhatu was saying we outlined what motivated us to even start investigating some of these questions and one of the biggest thing one one important thing that motivates us is also einstein and einstein's philosophy and what his untimely passing sort of did to the course of theoretical physics from that point on and how it left questions that were not just that 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 were unresolved at when when he was alive but then since then they've not been paid too much attention and instead theoretical physics has chosen through you know through fields like string theory it has chosen to go towards like higher and higher and higher levels of abstraction just removing the possibility for human beings to be able to know the world like shambhatu was saying to know the world that that we live in and also you know even 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 more basic than that even understand what can be known and how what is the correct approach um to 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 know to know what can be known and in this regard i think we have the advantage of having thoroughly studied hegel but also du bois and you know their methodologies in approaching or or their scientific method in approaching questions 
at the intersection of philosophy and science. And the one thing that I remember from the meeting that has left an impression on me and that I'm still thinking about is uh, how science of this nature, string theory, you know, completely abstract, many physical dimensions where our universe and our physical reality is only one of million, one, one of millions of probabilities of possible universes and so on. How, what this does to, you know, human beings' ability to struggle for freedom. Like, what does it do to the consciousness of people who still have, you know, things like freedom and democracy and peace to build movements around? And I think what we spent a lot of time discussing in that first meeting was also how these are not just accidents that theoretical physics has taken these uh, paths. It is intentionally, it has been art, sort of, engineered that way in order to decapacitate people's abilities to fight just their fighting chance because you know the the state of the art right now is okay so string theory is so abstract it involves all of this abstract and complicated mathematical mathematical tools and so on but if you don't understand it then it's just your problem because you're not intelligent enough and so you do not get to be part of this conversation anymore but like Shambhartha was saying, we believe that the scientific method and, you know, science itself is, like Du Bois says, it's, 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 it's in service to humanity. It cannot exist for its own purpose and it cannot exist just for the benefit of scientists to build a career out of. It has to serve humanity in the final analysis. And so if human beings are not invited to the discussion table about what the future is, even of theoretical physics, but the future in general, then is this really, are we to believe that this, this, you know, this, this is, this is the path forward for us. So I just wanted to add that. I know a lot of people might have other things that they want to do. Just to jump back so is like, I'm understanding better what physics even is, because I don't, <laughs> to be honest. And, but I think it's cool because to me, physics has some more to do with like logic or like, you know, the way <laughs> things are like, mm, uh, the only thing I can think of is mathematical equations like X plus Y equals whatever. But like the way that things are like thought of in yeah. a way. Um, but that only makes me think about why the problem of string theory is actually even important to discuss and how in relation to the studies that we'll do, we're, we're talking about it in a historical, or as um, it, it corresponds to historical development, anti-communism, um, either the rise of nuclear, like that whole problem of war and peace. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so it, the physics and the science of it, it will be interesting for me to learn but I'm also concerned about how it affects the worldview. Right. Um, and this is it. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Because, like, the way that, mm -hmm. like, um, uh, yeah, I just want to say how it affects the worldview because there, again, is the problem that people don't know really almost anything and that we've been taught instead a certain logic to distract us from what is the truth about 
the universe or like to uncover the universe in a way. <coughs> um, but in the in that in the same vein of like what do you, what can you create of this democracy that is America? What can you create really? Um, of you know, and I say it like that because when I think of the emerging uh, um, China or emerging Russia or even of Africa, what they can can create of their civilization is all dependent on their science, art, philosophy. Like that's what it depends upon. So the physics and almost to be at the fore of the question of this uh, new America um, is on the table when we're when we were discussing um, this past uh, book club session. And also why I thought it was interesting. Everybody loved physics. It's not like you guys, you know, didn't know really anything about it or, but there is just something about physics that pushed you guys to something else. Like, okay, let me just go do something else. Cause with physics, I just feel like there's a limit. And the limit wasn't because of the subject, but because of the ruling elite and the imperialist nature of how physics is used. So I'm interested on a liberatory science. Um, yeah. Well, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Cool. I guess I just had one question. And sorry if there's background noise, but um, this, I guess, this is a question that could be addressed in the course of the science reading group itself. But I think I am kind of struggling to understand what is wrong with probabilistic thinking, because my understanding had been that Du Bois did think probabilistically, while also insisting on empirical truth and empirical reality. And I think part of the question is, is also a question of correspondence between like the the nature of physical reality and the nature of, of human reality, I guess, which is involved in that. But yeah, I don't know. I'm just I think I'm still trying to understand like why we're opposed to probabilistic. Well, because isn't probability different than possibility? No, no, no. I thought they were the same. <laughs> no, not quite the same. But I hear you completely, Jeremiah. I hear you. And um, the question, first of all, uh, Einstein frames the question of quantum mechanics as articulated, let us say, by Niels Bohr's and <coughs> Werner Heisenberg. He says this is a question of interpreting what <coughs> experiments, the data that experimentation has revealed. How do we interpret this? Oh, wow. And, you know, um, Einstein, and this this is where we're we're looking at another book uh, that comes out of the Soviet Academy of Science, and they seem to follow more Einstein's rejection of quantum mechanics and the way it interprets data, and this is just a small thing. This is where what we call the uncertainty principle comes into play. And, you know, the uncertainty principle, I won't get into a lot about that right now. Uh, there is uncertainty in the scientific process. 
in the process of knowing. But to then say that the fundamental principle of physical or physics, especially quantum mechanics, is uncertainty and probabilistic reasoning, mm. which means, and this is where um, mm -hmm. uh, Einstein is going, and we'll, we'll, we'll do more about this, you know, that if the world is only probabilistic, if we cannot know anything except what is probable and what might be, what could be, uh, uh, and that knowledge will forever be uncertain. We will always be in the uh, chaos of uncertainty. Uh, and, and again, you know, uh, we, we'll, be, we'll be coming back to this. But I think the significant thing is not uh, the mathematical innovations. This is where we have a little bit of a difference with Peter Ward, who makes the claim that string theory has destroyed physics, theoretical physics, destroyed it. And uh, Einstein said in the 1920s and 30s, if the direction of interpretation of particle physics takes the direction that Bohr's and Werner Heisenberg and those were suggesting, physics would end. Um, you know, and, 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 and for Einstein, and, and you know, we don't know enough about Einstein. He is trivialized, he is rejected, even as we saw him in the movie Oppenheimer. Uh, he's a, 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 a cranky, a uh, contrarian kind of guy, uh, but, and, and you know, I was reading um, from the biography, the official uh, American biography of uh, Einstein, the official one for this time, by uh, Isaacson. And he makes the argument that in the early part of the 20th century, Einstein was a revolutionary. But then in the face of quantum theory and quantum physics, he becomes a conservative. He really wanted to say a reactionary. In other words, to not embrace the whole um, uh, uh, architecture of, of explanation and interpretation that comes out of quantum physics uh, made Einstein and makes a person a reactionary because they're not going along with what is allegedly a revolutionary movement in physics. Uh, but the question, I'll just put it this way, uh, I'm talking a little bit too much. How, and this is what uh, uh, Sambarta, I think, and Purba say, how can it be revolutionary in physics and reactionary in philosophy? In other words, philosophically, quantum theory and its interpretation of particles, subatomic particles, is rooted in the, the uh, 18th century philosophy of the English philosopher, David Hume. 
what came to be called empiricism. That, uh, this is back to Jahan's question. We cannot know things beyond what we experience. And even Niels Bohr and other people in this quantum mechanic uh, movement said or have suggested and others have said recent or more recently that particles exist because we experience them. Our experience brings them into existence. They do not exist independent of us. We bring them into existence. And this is the dilemma of string theory, this further abstraction, this further mathematization of all questions, the, the further uh, consigning all questions of knowledge to statistical probability what we sometimes call the hypothetical statistical method. Uh, and uh, <laughs> to make everything a, a problem of logic, of symbolic logic, is a dangerous road to go down. And hence, if that is the case, then no problem of human knowledge can be solved by human beings. It must be solved by super machine intelligence. That is what they're saying, that it is all probabilistic. And, and so the certainty comes from uh, 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 artificial intelligence, God-like machine intelligence. I know I'm not being clear enough, but there is a direct connection between we cannot know the world or the world exists because we experience, which is kind of the same thing, and artificial intelligence what, what they call, what is it, uh, GPI or what is the godlike intelligence? Generator. Yeah. Huh? Chat GBT. Yeah. No, not chat. That's artificial general intelligence. Yeah, artificial general intelligence. Sorry. This is a fucking slippery slope. And, and this is what in the reading group, you know, we're trying to uh, disentangle. And we find ourselves, you know, we're starting with Peter Ward, who attacks string theory as not a real theory of anything, let alone a theory of everything like they were claiming. Uh, but we're, we've been forced to look at the Soviet Academy of Science. Um, and, um, people like uh, Boris Kuznetsov, uh, his biography of, uh, of Einstein. Um, and, and by the way, in some ways, in the field of uh, quantum mechanics, Oppenheimer was a dilettante. He had not, you know, gotten into the great debates, you know, like Einstein and Niels Bohr and uh, Heisenberg and, the, and them. We're into this great, really philosophical debate. 
wait, I, I also want to add something relating to Jeremiah's question, because this is also a question that came to my mind, especially when I was reading Einstein's critique of quantum theory, where he says that, you know, this idea of a statistical reality where the best you can do is say the probability of something happening in real life, as opposed to um, actually knowing what can happen and the ability to know it. Um, I was confused by that because it also reminded me of the Boyce's law and chance. But I think the crucial difference is where the Boyce is talking about sociology, which relates to how human beings interact with each other and the choices they make on the basis of a physical reality that's objectively true and exists. So it's about the deeds of men. And he says that these cannot just be governed by physical laws, like some blanket physical laws, but have that something incalculable that comes from, you know, I guess it comes from humanness and this diversity in choice that is presented and also the question of morality. But when we are talking about theoretical physics, their purview is literally to figure out the physical reality of the universe we live in and the choice that quantum mechanics or the interpretation of quantum mechanics that says that we, the only, the limit of our knowledge is what we can observe. Einstein was opposed to that, saying that we can do better than say that this is a probable event. We can, the complete quantum mechanics still has to be completed as a theory when it and when it is complete it will have a way to tell you deterministically what is going to happen to physical reality in space and time so i think that's the that's how i'm like you know i see i don't see what the boy says about law and chance to be in contradiction to this idea that the that the like the world of physical reality cannot be probabilistic is what I would like to say. But again, I'm, I'm still trying to work this out. Yeah, I also wanted to add one small thing uh, yeah, to the same thing about like in probability, because I think there is a distinction, like even in like, even when you're talking about in you know, a science and like natural science, there is a distinction between accuracy of prediction and, you know, this idea of, you know, determinism. And I think when we talk about the statistical interpretation of quantum mechanics, what like, you know, what the champions of quantum mechanics say is that it's not a deterministic theory and like you know that like if you know all the all the laws that exist you still can't say anything about about you know the future yeah. and you know like this brings into the question everything about like you know it it brings into, into question the nature of objective reality while the other thing about the accuracy of prediction that i think that's a separate question because like it's still a deterministic system that you're talking about so you know even in like you know what existed before quantum theory even in like classical physics you still do have uh like you know you still don't have complete accuracy of prediction about every single thing there are systems in classical physics like you know the example being something they call chaos where you know you don't have accurate prediction of of every single variable, but all of that. But I think the this is what Doc was also saying, and I think Purva was also talking about this. Uh, like you know, with Einstein, he did talk about like you know, Einstein is considered to be he is the father, so to speak, of you know quantum theory because it was with his discoveries of the particle nature of light that that all of this began. 
and you know he was talking in like 1908 1909 which was like 3 4 years after his his discoveries he was talking about the need for a new theory which has which can talk about you know these two like the wave and particle nature of of you know matter and light and so on but he was talking for a need for a theory uh like in which um, which deals with you know both of these aspects and like quantum theory uh it came about in the next decade um you know claiming to be you know such a theory but einstein himself says in the 20s that you know he does not see like any logical connection between the wave and particle nature of of you know matter in quantum theory instead what you do is you know there's this mathematical structure and within this mathematical structure you can you know use uh like like you can see a particle as a particle or as a wave but there isn't a logical connection and what einstein was going for was i agree with what doc was saying that you know this is a like he was going for a physical intuition a physical understanding and not it was it was not to be understood entirely in terms of mathematical structures and yeah yeah i just wanted to add that because jeremiah i mean i've also yeah had the same question that jeremiah did if i may uh add to the discussion so uh i when I, when i try to think of the significance about uh ca the characterization of the universe through something that seems as uh far away from life as uh quantum mechanics or string theory i think a lot about uh uh du bois teach, teaching us about uh, galileo galilei and the debate between the i think the heliocentric i forget which one is which but basically the earth revolves around the sun or the sun revolves around the earth we had pretty good calendars we didn't you know for at least for certain technological applications you didn't need necessarily the distinction at that time i mean you definitely need the distinction now for our technology now but even at the time it wasn't such a big technological question it was the your orient your whole orientation towards life in the universe uh especially uh, uh with with the roman catholic church what what was the way in which we uh related to the universe uh you know even a higher power uh that permeated into your everyday life uh and uh i i think that this uh uh debate uh of uh the statistical nature of reality or not or what can you know or not know i think this absolutely permeates life uh I can concretely say this, you know, this I postmodern ideas of like what is truth, uh, what's what's your truth? I, I don't believe that exists, but that for the sake of argument, people are like, oh, this is this is my truth, and you cannot know these things, uh, or, or you can know these things. They always defend themselves, so you can't know these things uh, when they're talking something that is nonsense. Uh, and I, I I think that this uh, the 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 domain happens to be a really mathematical abstract uh seemingly abstract level of uh physics uh and but uh i think that our orientation towards the world is uh uh predicated on these ideas these postmodern ideas of what can you know and cannot know and uh whether it's probabilistic or not i mean that that just happens to be the case uh in uh, the the point of debate in quantum mechanics, let's say, or in, in string theory, uh, there happens to be these unobservable dimensions in, in space that you can't observe, that uh, we have no way of, and don't intend to figure out how you can observe them. Uh, but that's the truth. Uh, I, I, this 
way of orienting towards what right and what's wrong, uh, I think, uh, uh, has to be countered and has to be explored. And uh, the connection to particle physics uh, happens to be, uh, and uh, uh, string theory happens to be a domain that has uh, really sharp uh, uh, articulations of well, what can be right and what what can be wrong. It's it's much more objective. Uh, in in the social sphere, obviously, there, I think there's objective truth too. But I think that uh, we have to wage these battles on all fronts. And then in the scientific and the physical sphere, uh, where you can have mo the most convincing, unarguable evidence, uh, I think is a very important battleground. I wanted to comment also on uh, Serafina's uh you know perceptions as a non-physicist on as, on physics and uh you know my perception of physics is that it's always been the closest to mathematics and therefore it's considered the hardest science and uh you know recently i've been uh looking into psychoanalysis trying to understand uh psychoanalysis uh and um I think it's Carl Carl Jung, but um, uh, apparently, you know, folklorists have collected uh, folklore tales uh, because folklore is universal across all cultures, and so uh, the method of understanding folklore across cultures has been to categorize all the folklore across all the cultures in the world, and they have a system. And to be an academic or scholar who studies folklore, you have to know this system. And um, this methodology is really similar to uh, the one used, uh, you know, when, when you go to the British Museum. What, what were the naturalists or the British scientists doing? They were collecting, you know, skulls. They were doing race science. They were collecting species. And uh, the idea was once you have a large enough collection, you can draw appropriate conclusions. Um, and this is what uh, particle scientists are doing. Once they've collected enough particles, uh, they can they can say with uh, you know certainty that they, they understand the whole system. Um, but I think what we're trying to say, the preschool is trying to argue, is that the problem of understanding uh, particle physics is you only understand one layer of the problem, and that the issue is on another layer. And so um, it's more important rather than to categorize, uh, it's more important to understand you know, the motion of the whole system um, or to be able to figure out problems. Um, but uh, we're also, you know, it goes back to um, this uh, worldview or methodology. Um, uh, Doc, I was, I was reading the article and I was reading an article about the uh, quadruplets and uh, it was talking about uh, you know psychoanalysts in the 30s uh, or after the 30s in the 60s and 70s as a reaction to the civil rights movement uh, were straying away from social causes and going toward you know they were focused on biological causes and you know that led to a lot of mistakes and um, when we first started reading uh, Hegel we talked about how uh, philosophy is overdetermining, or uh, philosophy is politics, um, and politics is a means of war, and therefore philosophy is a, a means of war. And I think we're talking here about um, philosophy being overdetermining to physics. And you know, 
thanks, you know, salute to this science reading group for doing this work because the solutions to the methodology in physics, because it's such a hard science, will will bear fruit for the softer sciences like social science and psychology and psychoanalysts. Um, I don't know if you want to read the remaining comments, Nuri. Yeah, I can read the ones that are related to the science stuff. So let's see. Oh, actually, I'll just read some comments. So Christopher Romero, this is on the hip hop thing, but he says, I believe similar to the blues or country, the ruling class tries to take away any radical aspects um, and sells essentially the whitewash version. It allows them to control and deprive opposition. Um, he says on the LGBTQ side, there's also a push for using drugs in clubs, cattiness and being hostile in the dating sphere. The ruling class benefits over continuous infighting rather than organic movement. Um, and so it's terrifying how these divisions are pushed in all these groups um, from African-Americans to LGBTQ. Um, Jerome says there are quite a few rappers in the NOI in the mosque. In Dallas, the minister is a rap artist, and part of his community outreach um, seems to involve hip-hop. And then th these are the science comments. Ryan Wagner says, I decided against grad school for these exact reasons, which is that science is fundamentally limited by the system, and revolutionary science is entirely suppressed. Um, a system science approach that unifies concepts is needed, not the constant isolation of more and more abstract concepts. And Colin Clement says, one major criticism of AI today is that it's simply statistical. Noam Chomsky said it's perhaps the first time in science that making models which simply reproduce data is considered a success. Yeah, actually, I feel like that's also an interesting tension, too, which is that I feel like science, too, is actually like very conceptual but it seems like part of the striving is sort of a reduction of science to basically like pure empiricism or just like statistics or yeah, like collecting data and then just like running models rather than starting from any sort of like concepts or actual theories that then can be proven or disproven. Um, but yeah, those are all the comments. Okay, well, what I was gonna say earlier was that the more we talk about the science reading group, the more, you know, I'm enticed to join, but you know, it's also, maybe I'll just get my updates from you guys at free school. <laughs> um, yeah, I also just like the framing of the purpose as understanding, I think you guys had said it earlier of the possibilities of knowing, like what are the possible, and just this thing of, yeah, and also because I also like the connection of science, philosophy, and art. And because it just reminds me of also how in 10th anniversary, we talked a lot about like how children and youth have a revolutionary consciousness. And um, I feel like that's related to like, philosophic and science assumptions and anyways whatever and then I also was when Serafina was talking I was like yeah don't you feel like physics like more than logic physics is kind of like almost like 
um, an examination of like relationships or something or dialectics. And Kathy was like, that was a point of contention in the last science reading group. And I wasn't even there. I just heard about it afterwards. <laughs> yeah. So, but anyways, um, that was, I'm really happy that we were able to do a report back from the science reading group. Um, and I think unless there's something else anyone wants to say, I think we can end here for now. Um, it was clearly a really thorough discussion because we ended at 1230. Uh, I mean, 230, sorry, 230. <laughs> but thanks to everyone. What is time and space? What are categories? But um, it's always it's always good to be together. Thank you for the comments as usual. Um, and we will see you from we will be doing free school from Chicago next week. So we will see you there. All right. Bye, everyone. Mm -hmm.